news, the beta reader matchup is now open for March. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar, and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A agent. I hope to see you there. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. Today's guest was born in Scotland, was educated in Canada and finally settled in the Blue Mountains of Australia, a place that reflects all three landscapes and where she has been able to write herself a home. Her short stories and poems have been published in Canadian and Australian journals. She has also written extensively in the healthcare and social policy field. She continues to freelance and provides mentoring services to authors at Varuna, Australia's National Writers' House. It's my pleasure to welcome Carol Major. Carol, welcome to the show. Thank you very, very much. It's a thrill to be here, Bianca. Thank you. It's such a thrill to have you here. I was actually a podcast listener that suggested that I reach out to you. They read your memoir and absolutely loved it and said, please, please, please have Carol on the show. So that was absolutely wonderful. For our listeners, the memoir that we are discussing today is The Asparagus Wars. And I'm going to read you the flap copy from the back a deeply moving memoir about the battles waged against terminal illness and a mother's struggle to comprehend the battlefield in its wake. While some family members wage war against her daughter's disease with natural therapies and doctors fight on using the latest developments in medical science, 
she longs to take her daughter to Paris instead, the city that inspired the young woman's writing and art. The Asparagus Wars ask questions about notions of victory at all costs. Shot through with fearless wit and resonant description, the story will break your heart but leave you richer for the experience. And I know we have so many memoirists who listen to the show who I know are going to find great value in listening to you, Carol. So before we begin chatting about the memoir itself, you've mentioned to me when we chatted on email that your sister is a poet in Edmonton, and you've told me that she's a cerebral writer, whereas you've said that you're a visceral writer. For our listeners, can we discuss what that difference is? Ah, it's always a good question. My sister, um, when when we were little girls, she would um, she read and read and read and read all the time. I was more a kind of girl that went down into the ravine and orchestrated my stories in the landscape. So I think Alice will talk about how she comes to uh, writing an idea sort of way, a thinking sort of way. Whereas I think I feel it through my body as an emotion. And so I'm all, and my memory is very visceral. I'm, when I remember things, I remember them through sense, through uh, my nose, through my smell, through my body. And that comes out very much in when I am writing. And it also shapes how I approach the book. Yeah. Yeah, the writing is is incredibly evocative. And when we talk about memoir, the, the one thing that comes up again from many of our listeners is the concept of memory and how reliable memory is. So often people say, well, I was writing this scene and when I showed it to my sibling or to my mother, they said that's not at all what happened. This is what happened. So, of course, we all approach memory very differently. Do you think that with you as a visceral writer, because you remember things with all the senses, do you think that makes your memories more accurate? Or is it just that when you remember, it's all the senses that come back to you? I think it's that we remember in a particular way when we're remembering through our body. One of the things, you know, we're talking about memoir, it's, it's a remembering from a particular vantage point. I find that when I go into memory through my body, I remember not just that moment, but how it, how it works with all my other memories too. Actually, I'd like to go take that, that, that conversation slightly in another direction. Because a lot of people will ask, well, how can you remember when something is really difficult? How is that emotionally for you? Because you are going into body. And the reason that I'm going into body is that I want to take my reader to a felt place. Not necessarily an understood one, but a felt place. I want to take them there. In order to do that, I have to go into my body and feel it. But at the same time, I have to separate myself slightly from it. And what I mean by that is that it's about the craft itself, that when you are writing, you are crafting something, you are making meaning out of memory. Memory on its own, in fact, if you just wrote something that was awful, and there were aspects of my, my story that are difficult. But then I would just be saying to a reader, oh, look how awful this is. And that would be a one-note thing. We'd all be, oh, well, that's awful, that's awful. But what does it mean? So in trying to write a memoir, it is uh, trying to find the meaning in that. What does this mean? So when I am going into my body, I had reached a point at that stage when I was crafting it 
that I'm separating it myself in order to craft it properly and also to be really clear about my intention for telling the story. That is incredibly important because if you look at the intention, and I read many memoirs at, at Varuna, I'm always you know, working with writers in that area. You know, many people will write a, a memoir because they're writing from a place of defense. They're wanting to point and say, look what happened and it was bad. And we, it's, this is normal. I'm the hero. I'm the one who got it right. They got it wrong. Or just, I'd like to cry about this, which isn't what a memoir should be about. A memoir is a point in your life, not a biography about everything that happened, but a point in your life where you suddenly had something illuminated for you. And so that that's you know, spending time with what you've got on your plate and asking lots of questions about it. That's the content. But why am I writing? Who am I speaking to about this? And why? What is my intention in telling it? In with my memoir, the last thing I wanted to do was castigate anyone. Because in many ways, that was the central theme of the book. Here we were, a whole bunch of crazy people, you know, foot soldiers in a sense in the service of love. But we had different approaches to how we were going to tackle a dying daughter. While some people were trying to find a cure for her, I was willing to risk her life and take her to Paris. How do I go about that? It was then once I had separated myself about my intention is to look clearly at each one of those scenes and have myself in them. So I become a character in that novel, in that story, as much as anyone else. And so, as I say in one of my lines, I cannot tell you what really happened, you know, what was going on for other people. All I can tell you is what I saw and what I heard. And so in doing the, in writing, that's what I kept having to do was to pull back. What did I see? No judgment here. What did I smell? What did I hear? And take the reader into that moment. And what you've said there is so incredibly helpful and so powerful for memoirists in terms of, because I get a lot of manuscripts from emerging writers and a lot of them are memoirists. And what they fall into is telling, is saying, this is what happened, et cetera, et cetera, as opposed to showing it to the reader, because it's so integral in memoir just as it is in fiction, that the reader needs to become a part of the story. They need to become engaged with it. They need to decide for themselves how they feel about these things that are happening because it's not enough for a memoirist to create meaning for themselves in writing their memoir. It needs to have some meaning for the reader. Otherwise, no publisher is going to publish it. And if you are a spectator, to these moments when you are writing about them, it allows you to essentially be this fly on the wall, first and foremost, who is describing the scene as it's happening, how people are moving through the scene, the dialogue, how things are unfolding, and then you're allowed to process that and create meaning from it. Would you agree with that? I would totally agree with that. One of the things that I'm often saying to writers too is, because often they'll, they'll talk a lot in the in the story. I felt this way. I cried a lot. I was awful. My stomach churned. When you're doing that, you're leaving no space for the reader to have their own stomach churn. You're flattening out the you know your the emotion that they might feel because you're describing your own emotion. So show them it. Show it. Show it. Show what's 
happening and then let them feel it. Yeah, that's incredibly useful for our memoirists out there. We, we want to say to our readers, this is how I felt, this is how awful it was, but 100%, it completely, it almost says to the reader, you have no part in this story. This is my story and I'm going to tell you how I felt and how I processed it, but it's got nothing to do with you. And people come to memoir to make sense of things that are happening in their own lives that are similar and seeing somebody else process these things and seeing this unfold on the page allows them to feel about it in a certain way. Something you did as well, Carol, is you were unflinching in terms of portrayal of yourself in this story. Because yes, this is a story of this terrible tragedy and this terrible grief, etc. But there's so much more in this novel. It's a story of feminism, of internalized misogyny through decades, I would say. It's almost like intergenerational trauma. Um, and, and there was so much that you had taken on and internalized by being a very young mother, feeling like you didn't deserve to be this mother or you weren't doing a good job of it, etc., etc. So can you talk about that as well for memoirists who are trying to look at the snapshot of their life, because as you say, memoir is not biography, but who you are in that moment when these terrible things are happening to you is as a result of who you are based on all of these things that have happened to you through your life. So how do you weave in those different themes as well? And how do you do it with such brutal honesty? Because I think it's in human nature to always portray ourselves in a more positive light. I think part of the way I was able to do that was also because I was asking whom I was telling the story to, and I was telling it to my dear daughter. And it was so important to be telling her the absolute truth of the honest of it. I think the other thing is that when I, again, when I'm working with writers, I, I can smell when they're covering up. And then the whole story is not there because it becomes a hero's story. And again, a big part of my theme was I'm tired of heroes and non-heroes. Who's the bad guy? Who's the good guy? I felt I could not tell that story unless I was that brave. And you have to have courage to do that, I think. And there was a release in doing that, just saying this is the whole freaking landscape. Because if I'm going to show the whole freaking landscape, I have to show me too. I cannot take sides on this. Here is me. So for our listeners, this memoir is almost like an epistolary form. It is letters from Carol to her daughter. Each one's dated. The settings in the Asparagus Wars shifts backwards and forwards from France, where Carol was in 2017 when she was writing these letters, to the point back in the past before her daughter passed. Something that was so interesting as well was the setting in terms of the memoir in terms of where the letters were written. So for example, you partly wrote the book while visiting French towns that were savaged by the Great War. And there's these parallels that are drawn between what these towns went through during the war to also this kind of in the trenches experience that you had kind of being in a sort of metaphorical surgical tent with your daughter while her bowel was operated on without anesthetic because she was too weak to withstand one. Are these things that you were thinking about before you sat down 
to write these letters? Were these parallels that you drew as you were in the place and as you were writing to her? Because if you're such a visceral writer, I'm assuming you didn't sit down and very cerebrally plot the whole thing. I feel like you you sat down with all the emotion. How, how did that unfold in terms of the process? I did not intend to write this as a novel at first. I went totally mad after my daughter died. There was just so much uh, grief, but also so much shame. Shame that I had not been a good soldier, that I had not gone out to find Lorenzo's oil on the mountain points, that instead I had tried to take her to Paris. And then when I couldn't do that, decorated her flat to look like Paris instead, because somehow creating beauty, an act of creation was how I, I was going to battle this. But when I was going, I kept writing in my diary and I kept writing to her in many ways. It, well, actually, I didn't even know who I was writing to. I was just getting this craziness down. But as time went on, I began to realize I was writing to her. So it's in my form of writing. I mean, I find the structure afterwards. I'm, I'm just going wild. I'm just going wild into myself. Where are we going here? Just writing this visceral thing. It wasn't until, I mean, we're talking three years of, of me crashing around in different landscapes and crashing around in stone cottages in Scotland because I think my heart, my body was looking for something as bleak because I go there in a the freaking winter. I want to find something as bleak and wild out there as I am feeling bleak and wild inside myself. And then, of course, I go to Berlin out of a fluke encounter. But again, it was like I had needed to throw my body into space. I needed to be hit outside by something in order to find out where is this thing. And so and in the end, I end up in the battlefields of France. I could not go to Paris because I, I felt that would be taking away something from my daughter because I was alive and she was dead. And as you can imagine, I wanted it to be the reverse. So when I got to the battlefields in that stone cottage, it was actually seeing that landscape. And then something starts to merge in the mind that this is the thing that is echoing what is going on for you inside. And as I began to look at those graves, I became fascinated with those young men who had died and also then began to look at the letters that they had tried to write out of that space. Then I began to say, what I was looking for, I was looking to find the disgraced soldiers because I felt like a disgraced soldiers. I had not done the battle. And it was in looking that I began to find what I needed to find, but always not knowing what it would be until I found it. So it's not that cerebral thing. It's actually being confronted by a visual image, by a smell, by everything that suddenly says, oh my God, this is it. This is what I need to understand in order to find any kind of understanding to what has gone on, any kind of meaning in it, yeah. And what strikes me there is the finding the meaning while doing the work. Because I feel like writers these days, we're trying to be efficient, right? We So many writers are like, well, how do I get this book written as quickly as possible so that I could get the agent, so that I could get published? And they're looking at the end result as opposed to, the journey of writing and the journey of finding the meaning while writing. And that's why writing can be so cathartic. That is why writing can help us find our way back to ourselves. I think when we write, we're essentially drawing a map when we are so lost 
to truly help us find our way back to ourselves. And that is something that you so beautifully did here. And I just, I want our listeners to to understand that that is part of why we write. And if we are so focused on the end game and on the product and on the end result, we are missing so much of this. Because if Carol had sat down before and gone, okay, this is what this memoir is about, it would have been an entirely different book because she would have decided upfront what the meaning was and then structured the whole memoir around that as opposed to letting it happen organically. It's so lovely that you said that. I'm always saying to writers too, the map is not the territory and you need to explore the territory. And then once you've explored the territory, the map is sort of the manuscript that helps take the writer to those points of illumination. And that whole feeling of, yes, it's the discoveries that you made that you are then being able to pass on. You're surprised by them. And then you can pass that on to your readers. We are essentially, when we're writing, we become the cartographers. We are not following someone else's map. We are in unexplored territory and we are drawing the mountains and the rivers, etc., etc. And that's important. And like you say, especially in memoir, you the cartographer, you creating the map for other people to help them then navigate that same terrain and make meaning of that as well. And that's so, so incredibly important. In terms of fallout that comes from writing memoir, that's something else that we get a lot. So many people want to tell their story and then they go, but I want to publish it under a different name because I'm scared my family is going to be angry or so-and-so is going to be angry. And I mentioned there's this There was this cartoon that was drawn that I saw many years ago that made me laugh so hard. I spat out my coffee in the morning. It showed a memoirist signing books at an event and the book was called My Shitty Childhood. And there are two people standing there and it's the parents waiting for the signature. And the parents say, well, we're sorry if we knew you were going to be a writer, we would have been better parents. So I know you said in the book there were some people's names that you changed, others you didn't. What is your advice to memoirists when it comes to this? What do you say to other memoirists? <laughs> I had said, I'm just going to tell a couple of little anecdotes. I had been sitting with a writer and I have not brought up, I have written quite a few books and so not brought them out. I'm only starting to write them out now. Part of that was because my daughter was a lovely writer and an artist and I did not want to do anything that would sort of like, again, take her space in that field. Although now she's saying, oh, for heaven's sakes, mom, get on with it. But I had come to this cafe with this writer and we just come from a writer's festival and she said to me, why this one, Carol? Why are you finally deciding to put this one out? And I said, oh, I don't know. I think it's just that I want to be part of the conversation on that side. You know, I'm usually the interviewer and I'd like to talk about writing for myself. And she looked at me and said, oh, for heaven's sakes, you know, you saw that, that interview I just had and it wasn't that brilliant. Come on, what is it really about? And I touched my throat. I said, it's here. I feel like I'm being choked. I feel I have been, yeah, suffocated. And then I suddenly realized, I said, I have in this witnessed something. If I do not write this, I will go to my grave in silence. And then the actual fact of living, the fact of witnessing something, of having this experience will be lost. And somehow I felt that that was mean-hearted of me, that I needed to speak, that I finally needed to speak. So that's one story I want to tell. 
But the other one is, <laughs> I was sitting in a, I was, I was doing a little workshop myself, and I had one writer saying, we want to know if this is a safe place. And I said, no, this is a writing workshop. To be a writer is just about the most unsafe thing that you can do. So you have to take a deep breath and do it. What has been the fallout for me writing this? Oh, I know that the character who is Lillian in the book is so angry that I even dared to speak that she has not read the book. My daughter's father rang me when finally some little reports came out in reviews and papers, and he came up and said, I'm going to meet you. I've read this book. I'm just terribly, terribly distressed. And so he wanted to meet me at the, the, at the graveside. And I thought, well, here it comes. But I was feeling still strong in myself that the way I had written the book was with integrity, that it was not to malign anyone. When he reached there, the graveside, I saw him there. He's standing with the book and he said, you have an incredible memory. I could not refute anything that you said. He said, and I'm here to say that I am so terribly, terribly sorry. I finally saw it for what it was. And he said, I would like you to sign the book. And so I signed it also saying, you know, to my daughter's beloved father, because I knew she loved him too. So despite all of the battles and everything else, here we were, there is a story. Now I would also say to reader, to writers, if someone wants to write again into that space, you are not stopping them writing it. They want to write their account, but they will also need to write it with as much integrity as you have written it yourself. Yeah, that's incredibly powerful. And I think we all, when we sit down to write, need to ask ourselves why we are writing. I think if we ever sit down to write because we are feeling vindictive, because we are feeling vengeful, that is never a good place to write from then perhaps we're too close to it. I, you know, I think if ever we're going to write memoir, when we sit down to go, I am going to expose so-and-so and I'm getting revenge on so-and-so, it's not enough time has passed and perhaps we need to step back from that. But what you said about touching your hand to your throat, when we are feeling so much emotion that we can't speak, that is where we feel it. It's like the throat constricts. And so much of this is us giving ourselves permission to speak and everyone else involved is allowed to write their own memoir as you say and so long as we're writing with integrity I don't think it's ever anything that that we can really regret putting out into the world. Carol we've come to the end of our time this has been such an amazing amazing discussion for our listeners are they able to reach out and do your workshops if they are not in Australia? Do you do online workshops? If they want to work with you, how might they go about that? Okay, well, look, I have done a lot of things through Veruna, the National Writers' House. So there are many programs at Veruna, if you want to look at, at that here in Australia, because once COVID started, suddenly we became international, just like that, as you can imagine. And so we started workshops involving other countries, and people can look at that. If they want to listen to my book, they can also get a copy of it on Spotify and, and look at how I did it there. There's quite a few responses to blogs and things like that on the net that they can have a look at too. I want you to take a moment to blow your own trumpet. Could you tell us as well the awards that this book has been shortlisted for yes. or that it's, yeah, tell us about that, please. No, it's, okay. 
Yeah, so I was shortlisted for the Beverly International Award for Literature. That was for the book when it was an unpublished manuscript and when I sent it in. I must admit, I thought, holy smokes, if I had sent that in a little bit polished, maybe I would have actually won it. But it was one of my friends who was so cross with me. She said, Carol, I just want to take something you're writing for it, look at everything on submittable and submit it to everything which I did, even to atlases, I think. I just, and suddenly this came back. I was absolutely shocked. And then I was shortlisted here for the Nib Award, which is the award in Australia that I was shortlisted for too. So that was quite something. I was very pleased. The Nib is quite a prestigious award here too. So thank you for that. Congratulations. So we're going to end it there for our listeners. Even if you're not writing memoir, if you're writing in the epistolary form, if you're struggling with writing these scenes in this honest way, if you're struggling with giving yourself permission to write, even if you're not writing memoir, this is such an amazing book to read. Please pick it up. We will link to it so that you can get it. Carol, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. Bianca, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Our friends over at Now Novel are running a limited time offer for their group coaching program. If you haven't heard of Now Novel, they're an online writing platform and crit community that helps aspiring authors write more together. Until the 8th of May, get $200 off group coaching, a six-month course including writing sprints, webinars with published authors and editors, and weekly craft workbooks and feedback. Alumni have finished drafts in two months, reached the querying stage, and achieved their writing goals. But that's not all. To make things even more exciting, we're teaming up for a contest for you to win a place in the course. Here's how to enter. Go to our website under the contests page. You will find a link to Now Novel where you will fill in the blanks to enter. The sentence that you're going to have to fill in the blanks for is... Nobody ever told me about the secret something in something. WTF. You will share your creative sentence on socials, tagging us at the podcast and at Now Novel. The deadline is the 1st of May, so don't miss your chance to win. Remember, you'll find all of those details on our website under the contest page. What are you waiting for? Go ahead and enter straight away. Hey guys, it's Carly here. I have been teaching courses for over 10 years. I have taught them at writers workshops. I have taught them at conferences. And one of my favorite ways to teach them honestly is Zoom because I get to reach you guys exactly where you are in your homes, at your computers, um, at any possible time that that works for you. So this one is going to be May 24th, 8 p.m. Eastern. And my next one is called Preparing Your Pitch Package to Literary Agents, From Polishing Your Manuscript to Formatting Your Query. Because listen, this is what I found. Querying writers' biggest fear is the unknown. What should my submission look like? How polished should it be? What are agents looking for? How do I avoid looking like a rookie? These are all the questions that you guys are asking me. So this webinar will cover how polished your manuscript should be before submission to agents, how to know your project actually is ready to submit, what type of synopsis to prepare in advance, how to format your query letter, what a nonfiction proposal looks like, etiquette around corresponding with agents, behind the scenes on how agents evaluate queries, and so much more. It's going to be a 90-minute long presentation, and it'll be followed by 30 minutes of Q&A. Every single question will be answered. And yes, the slides and video replay will be available, but only to those who sign up in advance. 
So I will see you guys there. It is May 24th at 8 p.m. Eastern. I look forward to interacting with you guys and answering all your questions about how to be ready to submit to agents. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our Q&A session for April. We've got a ton of questions to tackle today. And we also have a special guest who's joining us. Carly, would you introduce them? Yes, I'm so excited. We very rarely have special guests, especially for this for this segment. So we're so thrilled. So we have Andrea Guarva is an award winning entrepreneur, author, branding expert and writer. As the creator of Brand Strength, her signature author branding methodology, which is designed to help writers take back more control over their careers. She has helped craft the personal brands and marketing strategies of a variety of best-selling and emerging authors. Formerly the brand director of BinderCon, an advisory mentor for the Queen of England's Young Leaders Program in the UK, and a UCLA Writers Program Scholar, she brings a unique blend of science-backed psychological tools, brand strategy, industry knowledge, and entrepreneurial expertise to her author clients. She is also committed to elevating marginalized authors through various offerings and support. Find out more at brandstrengthmethod.com. Welcome, Andrea. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Your podcast is one of the most useful things for authors out there. So it's really a privilege to be here. Can't wait to answer questions. Amazing, Andrea. Thank you so much. For our listeners, we did put out a call on our socials to say if you had questions about branding, to put them to us and we would have Andrea answer them. So for those of you who don't follow us on our socials and would have liked to pose a question now, this is more reason why you need to be following us on Twitter and on Instagram so that when we put these calls out, you are aware of them. Okay, so we've got a whole bunch of questions today. We're going to kick off with the first one. There's actually two questions that are very, very similar. So we're going to play them back to back and then Carly's going to answer them for you. Hi, my name is Ashley and I'm a writer who is currently in the editing phase of my debut novel, which is also a series in the works. I was wondering what an acceptable word count would be for a new adult epic fantasy and what the odds were of an agent picking up a debut novel with such a high word count. Should I be focusing my energy on another work in progress for my debut novel instead? Any insight would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. I sent my first round of 20 queries for my 123,000-word adult fantasy romance novel and didn't get any manuscript requests. I posted on a writer's Facebook group for suggestions to improve my query, and the majority of feedback I received was that many agents might not have been interested in my novel because my word count was too high and that as a debut author, my word count needed to be at 100,000 words to be competitive. Is this true? Do I need to cut down to 100,000 or is say 105,000 or 110,000 still acceptable within the fantasy genre? Thank you. All right. The acceptable word count question. Always a fun question. I, I feel like there is no, I, I feel like I get skewered on the internet all the time because people will call into the podcast and they'll be like, Carly said this, or Carly said that, or Carly said she won't accept this. And Carly said over this is not, you know, and so I feel like I can't answer this correctly or incorrectly for various reasons. And I love you guys all so much for taking my word as the gospel, but there is no official guidelines, right? Like everything is completely situational and depends on, depends on all of your manuscripts. You know, I think Bianca always says, is like your manuscript is as long as your manuscript needs to be to tell the story that it needs to be and so there isn't there isn't this magical magical thing i mean for me the 
the acceptability, you know, and again, this is where it gets geared on the internet. You know, if, if I'm getting pitched something that's like 160,000 words, I'm going to pass on that. Like, to me, it's just like, does, did that person tell the story they needed to tell? Yeah, probably two stories they needed to tell at one, right? So I don't have a magic answer to this one. Sorry, guys. And just to follow with that. So for those of you who listened to our Bonnie Gomez episode, I mean, she wrote this publishing phenomenon lessons in chemistry. And she spoke about how she had like 100 rejections before this. And her first book was 700 pages. She didn't tell us how many words, but that's a lot of freaking pages. That's probably like 160,000 words right there. And everybody turned her down for that book. And we all going, oh, my God, it's Bonnie Gomez. We'd read that many pages. But, you know, this is so many agents just looked at that and were immediately like, oh, hell no. So we have said that genre, it is genre dependent. You don't want a thriller that goes on for 120,000 words, certainly. But if you are doing huge world building and it's YA fantasy and that kind of thing, certainly it can be longer. So just, you know, keep all of those things in mind. Right. Okay. We're now taking our second question. Cece? Hi there. Thanks for answering this question. I am wondering about when an agent looks at an author who has previously been self-published, what kind of sales volume would they want to see in order to feel like, oh, okay, this author, you know, wrote something that they were able to sell reasonably well. And basically what, what level of sales would an agent want to see to not be turned off to that author? I'm thinking of an author who would want to eventually be traditionally published, but maybe self-publishes their first book, let's say. And also, do those numbers depend on the genre or do agents sort of treat all genres equally in that in that respect in terms of sales figures? Thank you so much. Bye-bye. I will reframe this and answer what numbers would turn me on. So to turn me on in the hundreds of thousands, that being said, if you, for example, self-publish your first book and it had low sales, sales that you're not happy with, and then you query me with another, a different, great novel, I will still be excited to represent you for that great novel. Will the previous self-published novel be a plus? No. In fact, it will be a negative because those sales, those low sales are going to follow you forever and they're going to turn off publishers. So that's something, a conversation you and I are going to have to have, but I will we'll have that conversation and I will still be excited about a great story because you're a great writer. So we will figure this out. I do not recommend self-publishing out of anxiety, but I also don't think that anyone who has self-published and is not happy with their numbers shouldn't try to write new stories and shouldn't try to query agents because we want great stories. Okay, so sneaky author question here, Cece. What happens if we self-published under a different name and now we're coming to you and we're publishing under our own name? How are all these industry people going to know it's us? They're not unless we tell them. Publishing under a different name is much, much easier. So it's something that, you know, people might want to consider. You will have to have like an ethics question of like, should we have to disclose this right to the editor in question? You absolutely should disclose it to your agent and your agent is going to have to figure out how to navigate this because you also can't keep this information from people. There's going to be a way to trace it. Like at some point, there's a blog out there where you mentioned it. I don't know. So is it better? Yes, because again, the name recognition isn't an issue, but it's still going to be a conversation that we're going to have to have because we just can't keep information from people. It's it's a business relationship and it could be seen as, you know, shady ethics. Fifty Shades of Shady Ethics. Right. Okay, Carly, next question. 
I love, I love this question. Um, you know, if you're part of SCBWI or you have engaged with SCBWI, you know what an incredible organization that is. So I don't know if I can recommend as good of an organization as them. I mean, they were some of the, they were one of the first organizations to have, you know, set guidelines on, you know, exactly how much they were going to pay at all of their conferences nationally. And, and all they just had like, they were very early in terms of like guidelines, respectability, quality agents coming to their workshops, providing exactly what you're going to get, like knowing exactly what you're going to get from this. Well, I don't have another, like what I think is as good as SCBWI. Um, I would say maybe check out um, Poets and Writers because I think they keep lists of these types of things um, because I don't know of anybody that's like of that quality. And if you're talking about like grants and community and other things like that, obviously it's very genre dependent. Um, so for example, like Whiting Foundation for nonfiction, right? Like there's, again, it's it's very genre dependent. So if you are, again, if you are if you were part of SCBWI, that tells me you're a children's fiction author, right? So therefore I would just kind of continue with SCBWI. Thank you, Carly. Okay, now we're going to Andrea. Here's your question. Hi, Bianca, Carly, and CC. You might be amused to know that every time I write myself a reminder about the podcast, which is often, I start it with shit. So my note for this question for Andrea was shit TikTok. So Andrea, I've heard advice to upload one to three TikToks a day, spending about an hour a day on it. For someone with about eight to 10 hours per week dedicated to everything having to do with writing and getting published, would you advise starting a TikTok account? Not to mention the possibility that TikTok could be banned. My debut novel is complete and I'll start querying soon. I'm already active on Instagram and Twitter with a modest 550 strong following on each platform. Thanks so much for your help. All right. This is a great question to start with. TikTok is such a fuzzy thing right now. And I'm going to go old school in a sense and have you ask yourself a few questions. And these are super important. So the, the first one is, is your audience there? Because I don't know enough from the question, you say novel, but that doesn't tell me enough to know or to recommend saying, yeah, they're definitely there. So you're going to want to consider that. And in order to consider that, you need to really think about who your ideal reader is a little bit deeper. And where do they go most likely to find out about books like yours? So think about that first. If they are there, then the next thing is think about the fact that there are really two primary ways to use TikTok. So one is what you're thinking of, spending a lot of time building a profile, building a following, and, and it really is a lot of time, and essentially becoming sort of an influencer of a sort. The other way is to wait until you get closer to publication, and then you work with your publisher and they do outreach where they're getting your book into the hands of key people that your ideal reader already follows. So I think for most authors who aren't naturally inclined to social media, it's going to, the second option is going to be the better one, but it, it does depend. But the most important thing, again, is to come back to who your ideal reader really, truly is, and then how to bring them into your world. So in your case where you have a modest following, as you would say, on your other profiles, I would actually think about, okay, which one of these social media platforms is where my reader really is and where I can really connect with them, and then just zero in on that for now and learn how to do that right. Learn how to build that audience and bring them into your world, so to speak, and your brand. Then move on to something else and never rely just on one social media platform. That way, if it goes away, you're, you're okay. Awesome, Andrea. Thank you. Okay, next question for Cece. Hi, Bianca, Cece, and Carly. Thanks for being you, first and foremost. 
I would love it if you would talk about stakes. I have an agent in my novel was recently passed by a few publishers and they referenced the stakes of the novel, but the context was different. So I was left feeling a little confused by what they meant by stakes. In general, I know what it means, but now I don't. <laughs> if you could talk about it and maybe use an example like lessons in chemistry, what's at stake, that would be awesome. Thank you so much. Bye. So stakes are about risk. They are about what could be lost and what could be gained. Stakes sit on the shoulder of tension and conflict. I will now discuss what's at stake in lessons in chemistry as you requested, but beware, there are spoilers. So stop listening if you have not read the book. Actually though, I'm gonna ruin the book for you. The overarching stakes in that novel is Elizabeth's career. Given that she has a mind of her own and professional ambitions in a male-dominated field, especially back then, she is vulnerable, she is at risk, and people are out to get her. Will she be able to achieve her career goals? That's what's at stake in the big picture. But it only works because on a scene level, the stakes are always renewed. For example, when she had to work with a misogynistic new supervisor at work who clearly was out to get her, I feared that he'd assault her. She had been assaulted before and we knew that he wanted to assault her. And if he did assault her, I assumed she'd fight back and go to jail. So I feared she'd be taken to jail, which was very plausible back then because of the boys club. Still plausible this day because life's depressing. So I feared for that. Later, when we see her parenting, I was worried someone would call child services on her because again, misogyny. So her relationship with her daughter was at stake. Later, when we see a terrorist try to kill her with a bomb, actually, her safety was at stake, as was her dog's safety, since he was the hero in that. In fact, the dog's safety is at stake in various other moments, including when Calvin dies. When she says she's an atheist on national TV, I feared for her because I was like, oh my God, the show's going to be canceled. She's going to lose her livelihood. So her livelihood's at stake. Her career success is at stake. This is all to say that, as you can see, I was constantly terrified for her. I was constantly fearing for her because she was always at risk. When I read pages in which the stakes aren't working for me, the three main causes are one, the emotion isn't there, especially active emotion. There's no active emotion. Two, there is one overarching stake, something like her career. Will she be able to be happy? Will her career work out? But the renewed stakes in scene are not there as the story unfolds. So it just feels frustrating. I'm not going to read 100,000 words to get one answer to see if one thing is going to resolve itself. It's too much. And three, I don't actually believe that the character is at risk. So it's a plausibility issue. Sometimes plausibility issues happen. Those are the three main reasons for me. I obviously don't know. I've not read your novel. But stakes are very, very important for storytelling. And like all things, it's an alchemy, right? Like there are many elements at play. So maybe you could reread Lessons in Chemistry and map out the stakes for you, because I'm sure it's also personal. Awesome answer, Cece. Thank you. And just a funny anecdote. When we get these recordings, the AI transcribes them for me. So I read them first before I listen to them. And I got this thing, let's talk about stakes. S-T-E-A-K-S. And I was like, you are phoning the wrong damn hotline because if you want me to tell you about rump versus sirloin, I can't help you here. Okay, Carly, next question. Oh, we're going to become barbecue influencers next. I love it. Hi, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. Thank you so much for all you do. I absolutely love your podcast and you've taught me so much. I have a question for you about genre. So I've heard it said that new adult as a genre doesn't really exist or exists more unofficially. But I, for my work in progress, feel like my book fits into this category. 
the characters are 18, 19, but the themes are a bit more mature than I think is typical for a YA audience. And was wondering if you have any thoughts on how to pitch this, given some of the ambiguity about new adult as a genre. Thank you so much. I feel intimately for you asking this question because you're, you probably wrote a great book, what you think is a great book, what objectively could be a really great book. What you're coming up against is classic publishing problems, which is we have these boxes, we need to put things in. There are certain expectations for all these boxes. And you are right. There is a lot of ambiguity about new adults and and what it is and how it's perceived and how to market it and how to package it and how to actually reach the people that potentially want to read it. Because if it is a mature book for, you know, with 18, 19 year old characters, potentially, yeah, it's, it's not, it's not young adult. Is there a way for traditional publishing to galvanize this category better? Absolutely. Do I think that publishing is leaving dollars on the table by not being like, because they're not able to kind of really understand this market? Absolutely. And that is why self-publishing in New Adult is is doing really well. So I, I feel for you, I do not have a good answer for you because of the ambiguity. And my job is to read the market, right? Like, like I'm a quarterback on a football field, right? And I'm reading the market. And I'm, I'm I agree, the ambiguity is so strong that it would, it makes me very tentative as an agent to dip my toe into that category. Thank you, Carly. Okay, next question for Cece. Hi, I'm wondering when you have a dual timeline, does each timeline need to need to take up the same amount of space in the novel, meaning past versus present? And if not, can you offer any examples of where you've seen this done with some disparity? Thanks. No, but it helps if they are, because symmetry is unconsciously pleasing to the reader's brain. Can I think of an example? Of course I can. Bianca's fantasy debut, The Witches in Moonshine Manor. There are two timelines, but most of the book takes place in the present day timeline. The timeline that takes place 33 years ago, I think, only starts after chapter 35 or something. The chapters are quite short. So that's a great example. And so if you want to take a look, I recommend that you read it if you haven't already. Thank you, Cece. I always recommend that you read that amazing book to all of our listeners. Right. Next question for Carly. Hi, Carly, Cece, and Bianca. I love your podcast so much. My name is Sarah. I am about ready to query my first novel, and I'm wondering if it's better to send let's say like 10 query letters out to maybe not my first choice literary agents, though, of course, I'd be happy for anyone to pick up my novel, but with the idea that I might get feedback early. So if nobody requests a full or whatever, I might know that there's an issue with my first five pages and my query letter, or is it better to just start from my very favorites and and see what happens? Like, do you have a way of advising on how to batch query letter submissions. Thank you. Okay. I totally understand why this is an incredibly tempting thing to do. A feedback round is something I absolutely never, ever recommend doing for a couple of reasons, because the feedback that you think you're going to get is actually not going to happen. Querying for feedback, I think is an incredibly an incredible rookie mistake because again, you're not going to get the feedback you're looking for and you shouldn't hold back on your top tier of agents. I think in order to be ready to submit that you kind of need to need to be really, really ready. And so kind of dipping your toe in the water to me 
just shows that maybe I don't know, maybe you're not ready. I don't I don't know. And I understand from a you know guarding against risk point of view why it would be tempting to do it. But that's why I am teaching my course on preparing your pitch package to agents. And I have a two hour webinar I'm teaching in May on May 24th, where we're going to cover everything that you need to get ready, everything from your query letter to your synopsis to how to communicate to agents every single thing that you need to get ready to feel confident. And that way you can query your top tier of agents and be absolutely confident that if they were to request it or offer representation, you'd be ready to go. I don't want you to leave anything on the table. I don't want you to look back and say, you know, what if I should have done that? So if you're thinking about it, please come join my webinar and and I would love to see you there and help you through this. Thank you, Polly. Okay, next one for Cece. Hello from Germany. I have a question about choosing comp titles. I plan to create my YA contemporary in the US and in the UK. And I'm wondering, because most of my comp titles are published by US publishers, they're US authors, if I should switch it up in the query when I send it to UK agents and opt for comps that are more popular in the UK, even if they're not the perfect, perfect fit, the way that my US comps are. I would love to hear your thoughts. No, don't worry about it. Choose the comps that are perfect for your novel. This is an easy peasy one. Thank you. Right, next one for Andrea. Hello, the shit and friends. I have a question about pen names and author profiles on the internet. I spend a lot of my day-to-day life doing political advocacy work that's very partisan and also spend a lot of time yelling on the internet about the failures of my local provincial government. Is it wise for me to perhaps develop a separate persona that is a bit more authorly focused? Or should I just incorporate my political nonsense into my author persona on the internet? Thanks very much. Have a great day. All right. This is interesting. This question's coming up more and more often with authors, I've noticed. So the first thing I'm going to say again is take a look at who your audience is and who your readers are. If your book is still going to have like major overlap with the type of people who enjoy this partisan politicking, then maybe you can integrate. But if it's not, which I'm guessing it probably isn't given you're asking the question, it's really hard to hide your true identity these days. So bear that in mind. Totally can do it. People do it all the time. But if you choose to do it, I would encourage you to really map out what the persona is of this brand, because essentially it's a personal brand that you're kind of creating out of thin air. So decide who that is, create some boundaries around that and how it's going to work in your life and understand what the bigger vision is, how it's going to incorporate with your career and life overall. And then the other thing is you're going to need to really communicate with your agent and make sure that you too have a strategy for how you're going to handle that and avoid, you know, it's, it's a, it's a dicey time to be politically partisan and trying to build a separate career. So good luck to you. Hopefully that's helpful. Thank you, Andrea. Okay, next one for Carly. Hi, Bianca, Cece, and Carly. I have a question regarding genre. I'm still trying to get a handle, not just on genre, but all the sub-genres of fiction. Every time I finish a novel, I wonder how it's been categorized and described by agents and publishers. Is there a master list somewhere on the internet of recent books and how they've been exactly categorized? I hope so. It would help me so much. Anyway, thank you for all the great info you provide on your podcast. I look forward to it every week. Yes, there is a location where there is a master list, and I know exactly where it is. It's called Publishers Marketplace. 
you have to buy a subscription, but in it, it's monthly and, and I pay for it and every industry member pays for it. But if you as an author want access to it, you just, you can pay for one month and then delete it. So you just like, don't tell them I said that, but go in there, spend your $25, do all your research, have everything ready to go, spend that month looking through every single category, every editor and imprint that buys for every certain category. You'll get the main categories, you get subgenres, you'll get more information than you could possibly imagine for your $25. So Publishers Marketplace, they also offer promotions. I think they're really sneaky about it. Usually they do it Thanksgiving and Christmas, like that week of, of the December holidays. So if you're looking for a discount, that would be a time, but it's a good use of your $25. Thank you, Carly. Next one for Cece. Hi, Carly, Bianca, and Cece. Thank you so much for your wonderful podcast. I look forward to it every week, and your advice is amazing and so helpful. So thank you for that. My question for you today is about interiority. I wondered if you had to name one flawless or at least just really well done novel that's just a great example of someone who knocked interiority out of the ballpark. Which novel and which author would that be and why? And whatever you say, that's probably what I'll order on my Kindle tonight. Thank you. This is a great question. I wish you had told me the genre because the expectations around the execution of interiority really depend on the genre. I teach an interiority class and this is something I talk about a lot. I'm like, okay, so what is your genre? This is how much you should be spending on interiority per genre. So I'll give you a few examples. Literary fiction, Naoise Dolan's Exciting Times. Upmarket fiction, L.A. Weather by Maria Amparo Escandon. Commercial fiction, Dial A for Antis by Jesse Q. Sutanto. Memoir, Aftershocks by Nadia Abuso. In every single one of these titles, I had access to the protagonist processing information in an interesting way that added revealing layers of page-turning wonder to the scene in question. So we had what the scene was capturing, what the cap camera could capture. Great, we could shoot that in a movie. But we also had new revealing interesting layers because of their interiority. And that is the magic of interiority. It can add things that no movie, no film, nothing that is visual can do. It is the only, only medium in the world that can do that is a book. Thank you, Cece. And something I just want to guard our listeners against is sharing too much information in interiority. So I'm looking at quite a few manuscripts at the moment. And what is happening is there is zero curiosity left. There is nothing keeping me guessing because they've overshared everything in terms of the interiority. So remember, interiority does not mean oversharing and taking all the intrigue and mystery out of your story. It is sharing things in a way that's going to make the reader curious so that they keep reading to find out what's going to happen, as opposed to going, oh, well, I now know this character's entire backstory, all their motivations, absolutely everything, so all the tension is gone. Okay, next one for Carly. Hello, shit team. I am wondering if you get a rejection from an agent that's very personalized and has comments for you on your pages that you submitted and you rework your manuscript based on those comments. Can you resubmit a query to them or should you just let that ship sail off into the night? I'm also wondering if you can query another agent at that agency or if that is a faux pas and shouldn't be done. Okay, thank you for all you do. I'm actually a big proponent of breaking the rules here. So if you have really reworked it, like truly reworked it, top to bottom, it's not the same manuscript. I, I kind of think you can, to be honest with you. If I do actually want to see something again, I will be explicit. I will say, please send me a revise, you know, and I might send even an edit letter. Like I will be very clear about like revise and resubmit. If I actually do want to see it again, I'll, I'll be very clear about it. But 
authors ask me this all the time and there's so much anxiety about it. I'm like, just send me another email. Just, you know, pitch somebody else, you know, if, if, if that will make you feel good and that will help you sleep at night. It is okay. Thank you, Carly. Okay, next one. What are some red flags on social media that would make an agent or editor want to pass on an author? So this, this is a good question. It is really going to depend on the agent and also the book and the brand that you're trying to put out there in the world. So the biggest thing is, remember, this is an industry just like any other where we want to know, are you someone good to work with? So are you a good literary citizen? Are you a, a nice person? You know, do you seem like a good person to work with? Are you or are you someone who's like picking fights online? Or, you know, is this someone who's going to be a pain to work with, essentially? someone super negative. Or the other side of it could be, do you have no presence at all? You know, if you don't really have anything online, that's going to, it's never going to be a good thing. Um, finally, the other thing we can talk about is just if you are someone who's very polarizing, that can can work. Obviously, we know many celebrity brands that are polarizing, but it needs to be a conscious choice and not kind of an accidental thing. So these are things that agents would definitely be looking at as red flags, but for some, it might be kind of a yellow flag, some of these things. So it just depends. Wonderful, Angie. Thank you. Okay, next one for Cece. Hey, Bianca. Hey, Carly. Hey, Cece. Y'all are so awesome. Thank you for everything that you do. I have a question. So I am currently in the trenches of querying, and as expected, I've received a lot of rejections, but I also received a full request. And I'm just wondering... If that turns into an offer of representation, how do I go about letting the other agents I've queried know that I've received an offer of representation? I know I'm supposed to send an email with a subject line offer of representation, but is there anything else that's supposed to go in the email? Like, for example, should I let them know the name of the agent or agency who offered me representation, or is that considered unprofessional? Also, I know it's an industry standard to sort of give the other agents a deadline of sorts on when you need to hear back from them. What should that deadline be? Thanks. So yay, congratulations, super excited for you, and I'm hoping you get that offer. So no, you do not have to tell us the name of the offering agent. It is not unprofessional to say the name, but you just don't owe us that information. The deadline should be nothing fewer than two weeks. More is better, as so many agents are busy. If there is an agent that you're super excited to work with, I would try to work that try to work a line indicating that something like, while I'm serious about this offer of representation, I'm a huge fan of you or your clients or whatever, and I'd be thrilled to have the chance to work with you. And be honest with the offering agent that you need time, however much time that is, to make your decision. Thank you, Cece. Okay, next one for Carly. Hi, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. Thank you so much for your podcast overall and these Q&A episodes especially. I have a question about smaller high-quality publishers. I am an unusual author in that I don't want to work with a big five publishing house. That is not my dream. I have a lot of issues with some of the behaviors they have towards authors, employees, and decisions they make about publishing overall. Even though I know you can have a good experience with them, I really feel like the smaller presses curate just a really caring author experience if they're a good press. And so I was wondering if you would talk about that a little bit, what you think about some of the independent publishers when as agents that is something you would pursue, or if as agents you only want to get contracts with the big five. And if so, why? Love your professional insights and also love your banter. Have a great day. 
Ooh, this is a really good one. And I love that you know this about yourself. This is great. So there's so many layers to this question. Why do agents pursue big five publishers, right? Obviously, the amount of money that we're going to get from a larger publisher is generally more. And therefore, we feel like we are doing a lot more for the author. We can, you know, pay our own bills with that money, you know, keep the lights on at the agency, right? Like all of those, all of those types of things. There are lots of times that I submit to independent publishers. And I'll name a couple that I work with. Beacon. Beacon. They're a social justice nonfiction publisher. I've sold them a couple books. They they do incredible, they do incredible work. ECW does more kind of like media type of projects, pop culture, that sort of thing. Quirk books. Again, quirky, just like they sound. So smaller publishers, though, usually always have a very specific mandate. So you'll notice I kind of explained a little bit of each about each of them. And so they're generally not open to commercial fiction or like general nonfiction, right? Like there is a very specific angle to everything, which is very important to know. So your pool of options is a little bit smaller, unless again, because if you have have a hook that works with one of these publishers, that's great. But it's like, that's kind of your only option. Do you know what I mean? Whereas like when we go out on submission to all the inputs at the big fives and large independents, we're trying to get you the most amount of options and the biggest pool possible. So those are some of the reasons. And I hope that's helpful. Thank you, Carly. Okay, next one for Cece. Hello, Carly, Cece, and Bianca. Thank you so much for taking my question. I'm at the phase now where I am shopping my completed manuscript out to beta readers. Uh, I'm working with a wonderful critique group that uh, you all placed me together with, so thank you so much for that. What I'm realizing with beta readers is that there's a gender divide. With the male readers, every single one of them has absolutely really enjoyed my manuscript. I've gotten very, very sincere, positive reviews. With female readers, it's been a little bit more of a mixed bag. Um, certainly there have been female readers that have enjoyed uh, my manuscript, but there were several that just didn't connect with it for one reason or another. What my question is, is uh, in my query letter, if I suggest that my target audience is male readers, is that just me being aware and savvy or am I sort of shooting myself in the foot by limiting myself? And so any thoughts you have would be greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. I would not note that in the query letter, the overwhelming majority of book buyers are women. So in terms of your sales potential, it's not great to have a book targeted for men only. I know you didn't ask this, but I would try to figure out like, what about your work is in resonating with women readers? Is it the same thing that is resonating with your male readers? And then only because this has happened to, to someone I know, could the gender divide actually not be about the gender at all because you have such a small sample size i'm assuming right like probably talking about like six readers seven readers like could it just be that the people who are loving your novel are fans of for example legal thrillers and in your group they just these people just happen to be men right so maybe the thing that's not resonating isn't about gender at all it's just some other taste thing that because of the small sample size we were thinking that it's a gender thing but it's not i don't know it's just a coincidence, right? That could happen with a small group. So my point is I'd investigate further. You have an opportunity to figure out what about your story isn't resonating with a specific audience, a really big audience, and that might make your story better. Thank you, Cece. Next one for Carly. Happy Easter, ladies. It is Natasha Santos here, and I've been a recent follower of your podcast. Love the dynamics of three of you. My question is... Why does it take so long to publish a book in two years? Thank you. Looking forward to hearing from you. Bye. All right. I will try to do a crash course in book production for you. So approximately contracts take 
anywhere from two to eight months a year. Like it's taking a long time for us to get contracts and contracts departments. You know, we we argue with them a lot. I argue, would that be the right word? Negotiate, have different opinions, consult legal. Like there's a lot that goes on with these contracts, right? So there's that element of it. If you're writing nonfiction, then you have to write the book for a year and then it goes into production. But if it's a novel, we're talking about editing back and forth with developmental editor, then it goes into proofreading and copy edits, everything like that. The actual production of the physical book, you know, oftentimes things are produced overseas. So there's that element of it. Then there's the actual sell into the stores. So the sales staff take these things called like tip sheets or AI sheets, depending on the publisher, what they call them, information sheets. Then they go pitch your book to booksellers. They're like, hey, Target, how many copies do you want? Hey, Barnes and Noble, how many copies do you want? They do all of this pitching. They come back and then they place the orders. And that's, again, how we know how big the print run is going to be. Then there's marketing and they need time to to kind of plant all these seeds and then there's publicity you need time to plant all these seeds so that's kind of why it takes so long and as i said it can be usually it's about 18 months to two years these days and i know it sounds like a while but there's so much that goes on thank you carly okay next one for andrea hi thanks so much for taking the time to answer questions specifically about social media sometimes it can feel kind of like a black hole for us sensitive creatives so i'm planning to query later this year and i'm putting more content and just posting more and being more active on my social media account in preparation for, you know, future potential agents looking at it. My question is, right now I am mostly posting writing related content that would attract other writers to my page. Should I be posting more just broad book related content that will hopefully attract um, future potential readers to my page? you know, for future marketing purposes? Or is it enough to just be posting about writing and having other writers on my page for right now? Is that something that agents are going to pay attention to? You know, and is that something that I should be spending time on right now in the stage that I'm at of just being in the querying trenches? Thanks so much. Well, I think it's awesome that you are getting more into being active on social media. That's super important. But having said that, you are falling into one of the traps that I see most commonly with authors, which is catering to other writers. And it's natural because that's the world you're in and you're writing in. But really, we need to shift your perspective to focus solely on your ideal reader. So thinking again about who this person is, what they want, what they're looking for, where they find out about things. And really thinking about not just that logistical stuff, but also psychographic information. So think about how you can, again, bring the reader into your world. So what are the themes or maybe it's subject matter, or if it's a novel, maybe it's the world building and the characters and the concepts. With nonfiction, it could be a lot about the concepts and subject matter. But essentially what you're going for is creating an emotional connection, a relationship with these readers. And so you want to make it whatever your brand or your book is about cater to that emotional connection. So if it's fun, you know, you're going to want to focus on fun or if it's inspiring or energizing or maybe it's thought provoking. But the focus should definitely be on your reader and not on other writers. Thank you, Andrea. Okay, next one for Cece. Hello, Sabahia. I would just like to know your thoughts on traditional publishing route through agents and such versus independent publishers. Pros and cons, uh, your thoughts on that. Thank you. This is an excellent question. So I, you know, as agents, we sell mainly to the big five and other publishers that can compete with the big five. Some indie publishers can and do. Many cannot. 
And when I say compete, I'm not just referring to the advance money. A lot of people instinctively get that. They get that big five sometimes have, you know, deeper pockets. But I'm also talking about, you know, is a publisher able to provide the discoverability that you need for your book? And one thing I always urge people to do when they ask me this question is, I need you to make a list or go to your Goodreads and list every book that you read last year, right? Like if you're an author, I assume you're a prolific reader. So, you know, however many books you read, make a list of those books. How many of them were published by the big five or other big publishers? Uh, chances are most of them. Because again, these are books that we hear about more because their distribution and their sales team, their, their, their entire teams are able to get more buzz going for these books, which means that more readers find them. If you're considering an indie publisher, one thing that I think is really important, and I don't see a lot of people necessarily doing this, is go read the books they publish. Make sure to find an indie publisher that's putting out books that you admire and that you'd be proud to compare to your book. Not every single one, but you know, some. That's essential, in my opinion. So it, it, it does come down to what your goals are, what you want, but discoverability is a big part of it. A lot of people tell me, I don't care about the advance money. I mean, first of all, you should, because you should care about money. But even if you actually don't, do you care about discoverability? Because that's a factor. Thank you, Cece. Okay, next one for Carly. Carly recently indicated that she wouldn't be interested in a book that was shorter than 70 to 80,000 words. And I'm wondering how she feels about a memoir and what a word count would be in order for the story to be substantial enough and for her consideration. Thanks. All right. So the first question was about Carly saying books are too long. And now this one's about Carly saying books are too short. All right. So, I mean, okay. I, you know, ask me on a different day. I have a different answer apparently, but I would say to me, like something shorter than 70,000 words isn't a full length adult novel. You know, there are books that are shorter than 70 words, 70,000 words that I've worked on, which are like lifestyle books, gift books, cookbooks, right? Like other things that have more supplementary material. At the end of the day, to be honest with you, and I know we obsess about word count, but I do go out on submission, obviously with projects and I say how long the words are, but I like, we're not tracking like the day it goes to print being like, mm, it now has, you know, whatever, you know, thousand words, like down to the, you know down to the exact word number it's like at that point it's like it's a book and it exists you know what I mean so this is all framework this is all just like general ideas and so in terms of a memoir like I probably wouldn't rep something that's shorter than 70,000 words unless it was very like literary and poetic and like that was the point do you know what I'm trying to say so again everything happens for a reason but that's just how I feel today thank you Carly okay next one for Cece hi my question is about querying memoirs I have always been under the impression that memoirs are mostly sold similar to fiction, but some of the agents that I have been querying have one set of guidelines on their website for fiction submissions. Usually it's, you know, first query letter plus first 10 pages or so, and then another one for nonfiction submissions, which usually involves a proposal. I do have both prepared, but I just wanted to get some clarification on whether I should be sending according to the fiction submission guidelines or the nonfiction submission guidelines. Um, thankfully, some agents do say for memoir, do this, but for the ones that don't specify, where would you advise leaning towards? Thanks so much. Yeah, I feel like agents should really specify what they want for memoirs because it does vary. I'd say submit based on the nonfiction guidelines because that's the category, like a memoir is nonfiction. But in your query letter, indicate that you have the full manuscript written because you're actually in a really strong position. The fact that you have a proposal and a full manuscript is a positive. 
right? Like this is excellent. So make sure to let us know. Thank you so much, Cece. Next one for Carly. Hello. Ever since I started listening to your wonderful podcast and following along with all of you on Instagram, I have heard that agents may respond to an author's manuscript saying that they aren't the right agent for the project. To me, this sounds vague. Is it just a nice way of saying that they don't like it or they don't think it's quality work? And then Carly and Cece, do you ever read something that you like or even love and still pass because it isn't a good fit? I would love some insight. Thank you so much. Okay, I think this is my favorite question of the day. And I also tweeted this one out because I love it. I just love it. So I'll start I'll start with kind of the first first part of the question. So yes, in some ways we are just being nice. Obviously, I'm not going to write back to somebody and say like, I didn't like this period, right? Like that would be incredibly rude. And just like, why? Why would I do that? Right? There's so many reasons why maybe I don't like something. Again, this job is incredibly personal. It could be like, I didn't like the dialogue, but maybe I really liked other elements of it, right? And I just don't have time to write everybody a personalized rejection like that, highlighting what I did and didn't like. It's just, it's just not, it's not possible. Do I sometimes pass on things because I don't think it's quality work, quality being the, the word here that this question asker asked? Potentially, yeah. You know, sometimes I don't think somebody is ready to be published. And, and, but I, I, we say this whole like, we're not the right person for it because that's genuinely how I feel and I have no idea how any other agent is going to feel right and that's up to them and, and their taste and their opinion so I could never I would never say to somebody basically the opposite of that would be me saying like you're never going to be published like how awful and rude would that be like you could like query somebody else and they would be like happy to see it right so it's like I can't make these blanket statements about the industry and so that's why these come off a bit wishy-washy like oh I'm not the right agent for the project or like hope you find success next door or like whatever these trite things that you get from us are. It's like, because we are trying to be kind, we are not trying to be rude. We we genuinely want everybody to find success, but it's, it's again, it's going to, maybe it's not for this project. Maybe you'll sell your next one. Maybe again, you will go next door and find some success. And we don't, we don't know. So the other part of the question was about, you know, do we pass on work we like or love sometimes? I definitely pass on work I like all the time. You know, there's a number of projects where I'm like, this is really good. And I think somebody else is going to rep it. And, and that's fine because I potentially don't have the time to dig into edits or another saying we have is like, don't have the right vision for it. Right. Like agents say that editors say that all the time, but it's true. Like it, it, there's a reason I have to be really excited about it. I have to be able to write a really excited pitch letter. I have to want to read this book eight times, <laughs> you know, pitch it to everybody, talk about it for three years or more, you know, like that's the type of commitment that you're looking for somebody. And so I'm, I pass on a lot of things. I like. Do I pass on things I love? No, I don't pass on things I love. I pass on things I like all the time. Thank you, Carly. And guys, this happens in dating all the time. You know, we've all heard, heard the, it's not you, it's me. And that's just a kind way of the person saying, you know, I'm just not into you, that into you, right? As opposed to somebody sitting down and going, it's you, it's definitely you, it's not me, right? So so there is, you know, kindness and, and being a nice person in this industry as there is with dating. Right. Okay. Cece, next up. Hi, Carly, Cece, and Bianca. Thank you guys so much for this podcast. It has been so helpful as a first-time novelist working on her first novel. My question is, how do you go about when you're querying, defining your genre? I know that Carly posted a bit about the difference between commercial fiction and upmarket fiction, but how do I know if my book would be categorized as more of a thriller or a mystery because I feel like this really makes a difference when you're trying to target certain agents. 
Thank you. So you read widely in the genre that you feel you're writing in. Go with your gut. And then you check to see if your manuscript has those elements. You have to dissect stuff that's out there. A huge part of being a successful writer is reading a lot and dissecting those books. It's 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 just something that every great writer I know does, whether they're aware of it or not. Because when I talk to them, even though they might not say I dissect books, they have. They talk to me about the technique that an author used in that book or a, you know, a way that a writer framed something in another book. Reading is going to make you a better writer. So that's a bonus. And it might help you find comps. And if you want resources, Jane Friedman has great, great stuff about this on her website, so I check it out. Thank you, Cece. Okay, next one for Andrea. This is for the author branding Q&A that's coming up. I made up an author name and for social media and all that kind of stuff. I did not realize, however, how amazing the writing community was going to be. I have since created a in real life writing group. I also have a Zoom writing group through the podcast. We all talk about a lot of personal stuff and they know I have a different name, but we all still use my author name. I'm about to go to a writer's conference and I'm perfectly fine introducing myself under my author name because that's how people that may or may not have seen me on social media will know me anyway. But at what point is that really freaking weird to be introducing myself as a name that I totally made up? I understand that my contracts will need to be in a legal name, but at what point do you say, by the way, this isn't my legal name, but I've just been walking around town introducing myself as this this whole time? Yeah, I don't I don't know how weird that is. I don't know how pen names are really supposed to work because I have fully embraced mine and I don't know if it's too much. Okay, I actually really love that you've developed this whole pen name thing and that you've integrated into your community really well. I don't think it's weird at all to introduce yourself as your pen name. Celebrities do this all the time. And romance novelists, for instance, do this all the time. So not weird. I would give you a few tips just to manage it overall. So one would be, again, to just really communicate with your core team about how this is going to work. So your agent getting that advice of how you're going to approach things. Uh, You might also, like I am not a lawyer or business advisor in this way (laughs) in any sense. However, it can be really useful to form an LLC which is not that hard. And that way you can do it under this pen name or even a DBA, which is doing business as this pen name, which can really free you up to be able to not have to have like in parentheses, your real name or whatever in a lot of places. And it's also a nice liability thing, uh, covering liability for you. So, but overall, it sounds like you have a clear persona already. And I would just really lean into that and decipher where you want your boundaries to be with your real life versus your pen name life and have fun with it. I have a client right now who's doing this and she's having great success, even pitching short form pieces under this pseudonym. And, you know, it can really free you up creatively too. So have fun with it. Thank you so much, Andrea. Okay, guys, we are now heading into the home stretch. This has been a marathon, man, a marathon. Okay, Carly, this one's for you. Hi, Carly, Cece, and Bianca. Thank you guys so much for the podcast. It has helped me so much along my writing journey. My question is, how do you know when a first draft is worth continuing on with? I feel like the more I write it, the less confident I am about it, and I keep comparing myself to other books that are already published, and I feel like my book just won't be good enough. Nobody will like it. And I feel like that has just made every time I go to sit down to write a lot less enjoyable than it used to be when I first started. So do you have any tips for feeling more confident in your writing or 
when you know that it's time to abandon a project. Thank you. Oh man, I'm I feel for you. I feel for you so much here. Tips for feeling confident. Oh gosh. I mean, I really think that you should be excited about your project. I don't think any writer is excited every day that they work on their project, but in general, yeah, you should be really excited about um about the the book that you're working on. I always feel like and again, I'm not the writer here. I'm the agent, but I always feel like if you are very excited about this project and there's not like a shiny new idea that's like distracting you and you're like, Oh, maybe I should go write that idea. Just listen to your gut, right? Like if you don't have another project to work on, I would buckle through and uh, you know, buckle up and and get through this one. Uh, Personally, I I think that seeing something to the end can be incredibly satisfying and those tough times are absolutely tough. And I totally understand that. The questions about like, you know, maybe it's not good enough. Like that's tomorrow's problem. Today's problem is button chair, get the, book done and again as long as you're not being distracted by another project just get it done get it done ma'am thanks carly all right next one for cc hi bianca carly and cc my question is if you do not have any type of literary degree is there anything you should be doing to have editors and agents take you seriously as an author i recently found your podcast and have been binging episodes so i apologize if you have already answered this question thank you I am going to flip your question on its head. I don't take people more seriously because they have a literary degree. It's not a bad thing by any means, but it's also definitely not a requirement. Remember that the slush pile, right? Like my inbox filled with queries, it's not filled with resumes. I'm not looking at your education first. I'm looking at your story. The first thing I fall in love with is your story. So I do not care even a little, like like negative caring here right now about any formal writing education because I already know you can write. The proof is in the pudding. I read your story. I fell in love with it. You're a great writer. I'm 100% convinced that you have the writing chops because I fell in love with your story. So please don't worry. If you want to work on your writing chops for your own sake, I think it's so important to work on craft. I love that. But do it for the sake of your book. Do it for the love of craft. Do it for your own sake. Do not worry at all about impressing me because of this, because an unputdownable story is all I need to be impressed. Thank you, Cece. Okay, second last question to Carly. Hello, Bianca, Cece, and Carly. Two chapters of my work-in-progress novel have been accepted at two different literary journals for publication. The novel as a whole has also been longlisted for a literary prize. I have two questions. One, is this something agents will want to know? And two, if they do want to know, should I put this information in the first paragraph of my query letter with the genre and comps, or should I put it in my bio paragraph at the end? Thanks so much for everything you do to help writers. It's very much appreciated. Okay, so I would be putting this information in the bio paragraph. So that's an easy answer for me, bio paragraph. Wonderful, thank you. Okay, last question to Cece. Is it acceptable to send a query letter to a publisher about a book that I have already self-published or do they only take unself-published books? Thank you. In general, they're looking for books that have not been published yet. Well, there you have it. That was almost 30 questions that we managed to answer for you. Thank you so, so much, Andrea, for joining us. It was so lovely having you on the show with us. For all the rest of you, we will be taking a break from the Q&A and the comp session over the summer. So May is your last opportunity to get in your last questions before we pick it up again in August or September. So make sure you contact our hotline. Some of you are being sneaky. I'm seeing it on social media. You're asking us questions on our Instagram posts and on our Twitter accounts, etc. 
guys, we're doing it this way because we just don't have time to reply to DMs and to reply to every question we have on social media. So if you are able to pitch the questions here, it means we get to answer them and everybody gets to benefit from that answer. So thank you so, so much. And we look forward to our next Q&A. My youngest son starts kindergarten this year. I can't believe it. One of the tricky things, though, about my kids being in French immersion school and me not having French as a language myself is worrying about how we're going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are very lucky, though, to live in Ottawa, which is a bilingual city of a million people. And we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So it's going to be really easy for our kids to pick it up at a young age through school and sports activities. But me, on the other hand, growing up where French class wasn't taken too seriously and we goofed off. I am so sorry, Madame Corrigan. We're going to have to make up the difference. And that is where Rosetta Stone comes in as the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. And it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. Immersion is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio to audio from native speakers, and then gives you feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. So you can really hone those pronunciations, which we know is key to sounding fluent. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program to get because they've been the expert for 30 years and used by millions, thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language learning training online. Of all the apps, it is the best at speech recognition technology. So it compares your sound waves to those of native speakers. Rosetta Stone has a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent built into the program. So as you practice speaking, you're gonna get your feedback on how well you're pronouncing words, other language apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of a one-hour private tutoring session. But with Rosetta Stone, you enjoy a lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. And right now we have a special offer for you guys that is 50% off. That is lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off, a complete steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's visit rosettastone.com slash today. 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.
Today's guest is the New York Times and USA Today best-selling author of several novels, including Surviving Savannah and Becoming Mrs. Lewis. She is the recipient of the Christie Award, the Harper Lee Award for Alabama's Distinguished Writer of the Year Award, and the Alabama Library Association Book of the Year. She is the co-host and co-creator of the popular weekly online live web show and podcast, Friends and Fiction. A full-time author and mother of three, she lives in Alabama and South Carolina with her family. It's my pleasure to welcome Patty Callahan Henry. Patty, welcome to the show. Oh, I am so thrilled to be here. And I have to say, I like the way you say my name a lot better than the way I say my name. It sounds so melodic in your accent. Oh, wow. Did, did I pronounce it wrong? Uh, no, you said it exactly right. Just It just sounds much better. Oh, I'm thrilled you. to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. Right. So for our listeners, those of you who weren't at our Deep Dive Workshop series, which we recently had, we had Hank Philippi Ryan speak at the Deep Dive Workshop series about the importance of first lines, first paragraphs, first pages, and how much heavy lifting they need to do in order to set the tone for the novel, get the readers invested in the character, introduce them to the setting and the plot, give them a sense of time and place, etc. It's a very big job, and this is why on the podcast we help you critique those early pages, because there's so much you need to do. And during that, Hank showed us a whole bunch of examples of books where she thought this was done incredibly well. And this is one one of those books. So the books that we're talking to Patty about today is The Secret Book of Flora Lee. Now, Patty, could you kick us off by just reading us those first few paragraphs of the novel? I would be honored. And I, I love Hank so much. And she's so smart about how to grab a reader in her own books and in other people's books. So I love that you did that deep dive with her. October 1940, Binsey, Oxfordshire. On a red blanket by the river, six-year-old Flora Lee Linden awakens alone, a dome of blue sky above her and bird song wild about her. Someone called my name? She glances around the green expanse, at the churning water of the River Thames furrowed with winks and puckers as it nearly overflows its banks, taking to the sea anything or anyone who dares to enter its rush. The river surges toward Oxford, where students hurry to and from tutors under pinnacled towers, standing guard over cobblestone streets. Then the waters bend and curve, gathering force, bouncing against the stone walls and locks of England until they reach London, where bombs are plummeting to city streets, delivering ruination, where smoldering cathedrals and crushed homes litter the river with their ember and ash. Did someone call my name? Flora sits and rubs her eyes. She's not exactly alone. She has Barry, her stuffed teddy, and she isn't frightened. Why should she be? Her older sister Hazel told her many times that these woodlands belong to them, that the shadowed glade and the sacred sunlit puddles where the canopy of trees opens wide is a safe place meant for the two sisters created just for them. Wow. So I, I had goosebumps when I read it myself, and now I have goosebumps again from listening to that. So for our listeners, I hope you have seen just how much heavy lifting is happening here. 
in terms of setting the scene, in terms of creating this kind of idyllic, dreamlike quality to the moment, which is juxtaposed against what is happening not far away um, in terms of the war, etc. Now, Patty, after this, you go to Hazel's point of view. We go to March 1960, and there you write from a third person close point of view. But this first chapter is very much an omniscient point of view because you're telling us things that, you know, Flora would not know herself. So can we speak a bit about this chapter? Was it always your opening chapter? Was it something you came back to later on to set the scene? And why choose this kind of point of view as opposed to the one used throughout the rest of the novel? Oh, it's such a great question because I think what happens when, when, or what happened to me when I first started writing is I always assumed I needed to know exactly where to start before I could start. And that's just not true. Often, I don't know the beginning until I've, I'm either well into the book or have even finished it. But that scene always existed. I knew that this was the situation, that an older sister had made a fairy tale world for a younger sister who's only six years old. And this younger sister believed in it, believed in it in such a way that the world around her felt as magical as that land. But that wasn't the opening chapter. The opening chapter was chapter two when I first wrote the book, which is when Hazel finds out that somebody wrote about this magical land as she works in a bookshop. So when it was all said and done, and I looked at what the thrust of the story was, at what would keep you turning the pages, at what what you mentioned earlier, the heavy lift, what is the overall feeling I wanted when you opened the book. And it was for me this invisible line between the unseen world and the seen world. I wanted you to feel that. And I wanted you to understand that Flora Lee at six years old believed that, that there was this liminal space between the seen and the unseen. So that when we discover she has disappeared, we, we remember that she believed that until we find out what really happened. And again, you could have just focused just on that kind of magical quality. But then you take us to the bombs and the things that are happening in London again for that contrast. And that for me in writing is what makes excellent writing, is that you lulling the reader sometimes into this idyllic sense of peace and then boom, you're hitting them with, oh, in this particular moment, this is how it feels, but not far away. And this is why the sisters are separated from their parents at this point in time, right? Yes. So the whole book grew out of a seed of curiosity I had about the name Operation Pied Piper. So a lot of people are aware, especially if they've read Narnia or anything about World War II, that children were sent away from their parents to live in the countryside. Well, that was called Operation Pied Piper. And that name intrigued me because I, loving myths and legends, knew the legend of the Pied Piper, which is about a piper who plays a flute and lures children away from their town and they're never seen again. And I was curious why they had done that. I still don't know why they named it that, but it spurred a story about a child who does disappear during an operation that was named after a legend of disappeared children. And so that is all I really knew as I headed into the story. But 
the opening I wanted you to feel what what we just talked about. It is really creepy that they chose that name because isn't it crazy? You know, it's it's insane. And even like earlier drafts of the Pied Piper. So something I've been looking at is how, you know, the fairy tales that we read today are much more watered down to the ones that were being read 50 years ago compared to the versions that were being read 100 years ago. So I actually think in the original Pied Piper, he was in the fairy tale, it said that he was luring the children to mm-hmm. their death. It wasn't just disappearance. He he was luring no. them away and, and pretty much killing them. And days it's like, okay, well, the children disappeared and they were dancing, but there's still a sense that they were happy, right? They were lured away, but they were kind of happy. At the time when this operation was named, they, they really should have known better. Well, and what's fascinating, Bianca, is that not only – were they lured away to in the original to their deaths, but their death was by drowning in a river, the River Wyvern. But here's the other creepy part. It's a German legend. Like, it's World War II. They're fighting the Germans who are trying to invade them, and they choose the name of a German legend where children drown in a river. So I, I wish I could find the reason behind it, but what it did do was was spur a story. And that's what our curiosity does, as you know. Yeah, 100%. Something that I also want to talk about is the writing at the line level. We we critique query letters, opening pages on the podcast to help writers get representation, find their agents. And often writers will say, well, I have this amazing premise, this amazing hook. And so it doesn't seem really important that the writing is polished yet. Surely my agent or my editor will help me with that down the line. And we always say that one of the first things agents look at is whether the writing is there at the line level. Does it sing on the page? Is there a kind of poetry to it? And as you were reading it, and that's why I wanted you specifically to read it, because you would read it the way you heard it in your head as you were writing it. And it reads like poetry. There's a cadence to it that's just amazing. So when you sit and write at the line level, do you read your work aloud to yourself? Do you naturally approach it kind of as a poet would? Or do you just write in that first draft and then come back and polish like crazy to make sure that it gets there? I, a little bit of both, but I want to tap back to what you said about how important the writing is, or, or another way to say that is how important the language is in a story. If you give a hundred of us a, a trope, a missing sister, right? Like, what, how many stories are there in the world? Seven? I don't know, right? There's only so many setups that we have. And so it comes down to the language and, and the way for me, and actually that was one of my biggest weaknesses in the beginning 25 years ago when I first started writing, because I always say that I think that we come to writing with a strength in one of two categories, the art or the craft. And for me, I was much more comfortable with the art of language, with playing with words. I, I took Latin in high school. I love the root of words. And then the craft is more about plot and dialogue and twists and hooks. And those are just as important. But you can't say only the craft matters and or only the art matters because you can read a beautifully written book where absolutely nothing happens and you're going to put it down. It's not a poem, right? It's supposed to be a novel. And you can read a, a, a super intricately plotted novel and put it down because the language is so clunky. So I agree agree with you on on that in a really adamant way. Now, sometimes things come in that moment 
And other times I read back and I just clunk down some really blocks of words just to get from here to there. And then I have to play with them. And not everything has to be lyrical. But sometimes they just walk across a room. Um, sometimes they just make their way to the river's edge. But I do think that when you're narrating and you're trying to draw a reader in the, the language. But I'm, a, I'm not a clean first draft person. A few of my friends are. They labor over one chapter and then another and then another. I spend much more time writing that first draft than I do cleaning it. So a lot, most, I, I go through a few drafts. So a lot of the cleaning is, is done afterwards. And that's really smart way to do it because there's nothing more frustrating than spending a day really cleaning up something in a chapter that I never that, use. Well, or you send it to the editor and they're just like, nope, this is coming out. And you're like, I spent weeks on, on making this shine and now it's come out. So yes, 100% agree on that as well. Right. So, so we've got a lot of different timelines in this novel. We've got a lot of jumping around in terms of time and place, etc. So are you a plotter or are you a pencer when it comes to that? Do you outline the heck out of it and you begin writing and you know exactly where you're going to go? Or is it a case of you writing organically? You get to the end of one chapter and you realize, okay, I might need to go back 10 years to really move the plot forward. How, how does that process look for you? A mix. I, I once heard an interview with Neil Gaiman, who I think is one of our best living writers, and he called it an architect versus a gardener. And I really like that. Um, instead of plotting versus panting. And I think I'm an architect who gardens. So I think that I didn't used to. So my first novels were contemporary and I didn't plot at all. I had a situation and a setup and I went for it. But my last five novels have been very deeply researched historical novels. And for those, I need a bit more of the architect side of myself because I need to know exactly what happened on what day did they declare Operation Pied Piper. What day did the Blitz actually start compared to when they sent the children off? A full year. Children were gone for a full year before the Blitz actually happened. So a lot of families went back and got their children because they were like, nothing's going to happen. I'm going to go get them. And so I outlined those parts and I spend a lot of pre-writing time, not so much outlining as understanding my characters. Who is Hazel? What does she want? Why can't she get what she wants? She wants to know what happened to her sister. Why can't she get it? Well, because it's a mystery. Who's stopping her? Whoever did it is hiding it or she's gone. So there's, I spend a lot of time on that. I have notebooks and my notebooks have notebooks. But as for plotting out the plot points, I've, I've tried and an interesting thing about this novel for me, anyway, is that I had a different ending planned. And I finished the book and everybody was happy with it. My agent and my readers, I hadn't given it to a publishing house yet. And they were all happy with the ending and I wasn't. I felt like it was, oh gosh, maybe too plotted that I had, I had taken the juice out of it by understanding the ending ahead of time. And I took a few weeks and dwelled on it and came up with an entirely different twist and ending. And it was already in the book. I didn't have to rewrite the book. I didn't have to add a character. 
it was already there. And that, that was interesting to me. If I had stuck with my outline or what little of an outline I had, the book would be a different book. And I think less of a book, in my humble opinion, than it is now because I was willing to be more of a gardener than an architect after I set up the scaffolding. I love that because for me, it's always been, it's always been if I know what's going to happen, I have zero desire to write the story. So I write to find out what's going to happen. But the book that I'm currently writing is a closed room murder mystery. And you can imagine, oh, so Patty, fun. to try and to try and pants a closed room murder mystery has been quite quite a challenge. And so I had to reverse that. I then had to go, okay, I'm doing too much bloody gardening. I need to figure out some architecture here. Otherwise, this whole thing is going to fall to ruin. And I think the most important thing here is that as writers, we need to learn to be open to the process. We need to be able to pivot and certainly trust our instincts because this wasn't a case of everyone saying to you it's not working it's everyone's going I love it and you are the one saying it's not working and I think what what you just said is really important which is that every book demands its own we can't or I can't I would never tell someone else I can't use whatever skills except for the writing itself that I used in the previous novel. I can't come to a new book with the same structure, the same kind of outline, the same climax, drop. Every book of mine demands its own structure. Some demand, for example, Becoming Mrs. Lewis was about a real woman. So that required much more architectural work because I couldn't stray from her real life if I wanted to be historically accurate. Where this, The Secret Book of Flora Lee, is about imaginary people during a very real time. So that's the difference. Yeah, the constraints there are different. And I almost feel like that's why you went from the last book to this book to give yourself a bit more leeway to play in that sandbox. Because when you're writing about a real person, you can only build the castles that this person had in their life. Whereas if you use a historical backdrop that really happened, you can have much more fun with the imaginary characters, certainly a lot more leeway. A hundred percent. And so the fun comes in. So one of the things I learned, I, I love this subject because I think it's really fascinating. One of the things I learned when I was writing about Joy Davidman and Becoming Mrs. Lewis was about sonnet structure. I am not a poet. I've never tried to write po Well, we've all tried to write poetry when we were heartbroken at 13, but I've never tried to write poetry. And I, I understand it's not in my wheelhouse. And I learned about the sonnet form and what she wrote about using the sonnet form, which is very, very strict. You have to use the last word. I don't remember the rules, but there is freedom within that structure. So when we give our structure, when the book demands it, and, and you're in a closed room, that is your sonnet structure, right? But you have to find the freedom within the actual architecture of that structure. And I like that a lot. And it doesn't mean you can't add a, house, a room to the house or build a extra floor, but it does mean that there are certain structures I have to, I can't have the bombs drop before they drop. I can't have Operation Pied Piper have a, start on a different day because it's more convenient for my storyline, but I can make my sisters do whatever they want because they're completely imaginary. Yeah, it's like coloring in books. You give the same coloring in book to 20 different kids. They're going to color in the same picture, but it's all going to be different colors and different shading within that. So 
yeah, all of these things that we learn as writers, elements of craft, et cetera, et cetera. It's helping us give us like form and structure, but we get to play somewhere in the middle of that, which I, which I really love. In terms of when you went back in history, because this is something emerging writers struggle with, is they will have like a present day narrative, whether the present day narrative is 1960 or whether it's 2023, and they will have the plot moving forward in that narrative. But when they go back into the past, they don't realize that the past needs to have a forward-moving plot at the same time. There needs to be something in there keeping readers turning pages, just like the present-day narrative does. So when you go back to the past, how do you ensure that that's happening just as the present-day narrative is? That is a great question. And what's interesting for me about this book, The Secret Book of Floor Lee, is that we go back and forth between 19... 39 and 1960, 1939, 1940, 1960, 1940, 1960. But from the same person's point of view, I'm not switching points of view. Like in Surviving Savannah, there were 200 years between the past and the present. So we were in two different people's points of view. But each storyline has to have its own arc. The past isn't meant to serve the present day storyline. The present day storyline isn't meant to serve the past storyline. They are each their own storyline, maybe imagining it as two parallel running tracks that kind of go in and out and in and out, but they can't be, you know, separate. And when I read a historical fiction book with a really fascinating historical story, but a present day story that is just someone looking for hints about what happened, like, and there's no drive, the character doesn't want anything, they don't have any um, desires of their own, they're just a, a means to an end for the historical story, and vice versa. So exactly, Bianca, they, they both, and that's what's complicated about dual timeline, they each have to have their own arc. My 19... 40 arc has to end with Flora Lee disappearing. And my 1960 arc has to end with discovering why. But those arcs are weaving in and out of each other. And, and so important is that the characters in the past need to have agency. Because remember, if they weren't doing those things that they were doing in the past, the present day timeline would be completely different. You almost need to right. view it as time travel because if the characters did things differently in the past, then they may not have ended up where they are in, in the current narrative. So that's really important to consider as well. I love that you said that because what's so interesting, especially when you're in the same point of view, if they had made different decisions in the past, that's what they torture themselves about. What if I hadn't done this or hadn't done that, then she wouldn't have disappeared. So when you're going back and forth in time, but from the same person's point of view, there's that time travel. If I could go back and, for example, for Hazel, it was if I could go back and not make up that fairy tale, my sister would still be here, right? So that's influencing the present day. So exactly. I love that idea of time travel. It's great. Yeah. So many sliding door moments through yes. throughout these things. So our last question is, Writing a book within a book is mm. incredibly, incredibly difficult because you need to get the reader invested in the book they're reading, and then you need to get them invested in this other book that's within the book. And we on the podcast generally say to emerging writers, be careful with it. You know, we, we don't say don't do it. We never say don't do this. We just say it's going to make your job that much harder. So can you tell us how you approached that to make each one super compelling? That is a great question because it was something I struggled with the whole time I was writing it. I did think about putting 
the book within the book. So the way this story is now, the one that is published, you hear about the book within the book, but you aren't reading the book within the book. So I just finished, and I loved it, Kate Morton's new one, Homecoming. And it truly has a book within a book. Like you read the book while you're reading her book about, right? There's, it's very meta. Mine is very much, this is what the book Whisperwood in the River of Stars is the book inside this book. You hear what it's about, but you never have to read whole passages. I don't pull it out. That book doesn't get its own chapter where you have to read it, not have to, get to. Now, I wrote those chapters, a few of those chapters, because I needed to know what happened within the book, within the book. But I did not end up putting it in the book. We already were going back and forth in time. We were well aware what the fairy tale is about because the sisters talked about it. And I didn't feel the need in the end to include a book inside a book. I did think, and who knows what I'll ever do, but I did think of, it's a children's book. So I did think of one day writing it as just a small children's book as, as bonus material. But I think it would be lovely yeah. if you did that. And, that. and that honestly was my question. Had you written it? Was it there? And then you decided to take it out because it felt authentically like a book. It didn't feel like you were just summarizing some idea you had in your head. No, I, I wrote chapters of it, but I did not write the whole thing. And I love talking about it because I actually would love to do that, I have two very small granddaughters who are four and one right now. And I think it would be so fun to sit down with them and say, if you entered a magical woodland where you could be anything you wanted, what would you become? And then take that to its natural conclusion, which in the book inside the book is that we would in the end choose to be us, right? So there's a, there's a sweet story in there. Amazing. Patty, it's been so wonderful chatting with you. Our time is up, unfortunately. For our listeners, we are going to link to the secret book of Flora Lee in our bookshop.org affiliate page. Go take a look. There's The writing on a line level is just amazing in terms of the time jumps, etc. Just phenomenally done a great example of how to do that if that's something you're trying to do yourself. And Patty, we hope to have you back for the next one. Absolutely. And I love talking to you and your podcast is so informative and so much fun. It's on my, it's in my library. I love listening to y'all. So thank you for having me. I'm honored. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday, the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Welcome back to another comps segment. Today, Emily Summer from East City Bookshop is looking at all the comp requests except the fantasy, science fiction, speculative fiction ones. For that, we have RJ from Parnassus Books who will be answering those questions for you as well in today's episode. Emily, before we kick us off, can you tell us like what's coming up at the store? I'm hearing from people who would love to support the store. Tell us ways in which they can do that and be a part of your amazing community. That is so kind. So Bianca, thank you for the platform and thank you to all the listeners 
who are so supportive. We have had people who live nearby or are visiting and come by the store to say hello and shop, which we appreciate so much. So if you're traveling to DC or if you're in the greater DC area, we are on Capitol Hill near the Eastern Market Metro. So please look us up and stop by. I am often in the store. So if you come by, ask for me, I'd love to come say hello. And if you're, whether you're in the area or not, we have a robust events program. So our calendar is full. We have author events several times a week, and they are often usually hybrid events. So if you're in DC or in the greater DC area, you might want to look at our events calendar and see if there are any in-store events that you'd like to attend. Most of them are free. Some of them require a book purchase, but the vast majority are free. And even if you're not in DC, take a look at our events calendar because we we live stream almost all of the events from the store. You can chime in in the Q&A, watch on Zoom, and it's just like you're there. So thank you, Bianca, and thanks to everybody who wants to support indie bookstores. Thank you, Emily. And then for our listeners, it's amazing, but free events do not pay the bills, people. So if you know people in surrounding areas and you want to buy gifts, you can do so online and they will ship the gifts or or get books yourself. Let's always be financially supporting our indies at the same time. Right, Emily, to kick us off here is our first comp request. I'm seeking comps for my adult multi-POV historical fiction novel. It is inspired by true events. In the buildup of the United States entering World War I, Victor is a Hungarian immigrant assigned to work at a lead mine in the rural Missouri Ozarks. The mining company signs Victor a housemate, Ivan, a Hungarian man living with albinism. Locals nicknamed Ivan, Ivan the Terrible, and immigrant children fear that his fair complexion makes him a vampire. Victor peels back to layers of trauma, and the two become close friends. When children in the area pass away from unexplained causes and the sheriff writes to deaths off as accidents, Victor's boss, Arvel, launches an investigation of his own. Victor dreams of building a family in the Ozarks. He meets a woman, but love becomes difficult when World War I escalates and the threat of a military draft increases the anti-immigrant sentiment in the small mining town. When Arvel comes to Victor with evidence pointing to Ivan as a murderer, Victor is forced to make a decision, protect Ivan or give in to the pressures of his new community. The work is similar in tone and voice to the works of Donald Ray Pollock, but not nearly as dark as Donald Ray Pollock's works. So our first one is so helpful to me because it just almost does my job for me because this listener says that historical fiction is similar to Donald Ray Pollock, but not as dark. Immediately, I think of two of my favorites, Jess Walter and Ron Rash. They are both outstanding writers. They both write marvelous historical fiction with, I would say, similar vibes to Donald Ray Pollock, but neither of them write things that are quite as dark. They are not the Appalachian noir of Donald Ray Pollock and his ilk. So I would tell this listener, check out the works of Ron Rash and Jess Walter and see if any of their books fit the bill. Ron Rash has a new book coming out in the fall. Jess Walter's most recent, The Cold Millions, is excellent historical fiction set in the Pacific Northwest. But I think that even if the if the plot and the setting aren't exactly right, I think that the reader of these books might be the same. And I would suggest both of those as potential comps. Perfect. Right. Here's our second one. Hi, I'm looking for a comp for my big hearted suspense. This story might save your life. It combines the character driven pacing and tone of the last thing he told me with the autobiographical revelations of Verity. Best friends Benny Abbott and Joy Moore host one of the most beloved podcasts in the world. A humor-driven weekly survival show drawing from contributors' personal anecdotes on atypical life experiences, ranging from bear attacks to adult circumcision to Joy's own ordeals with severe narcolepsy. 
When Joy and her husband go missing, it's revealed that Benny is in love with her and has been for some time. And when her husband is found dead, Benny is the obvious first suspect. The book toggles between Benny's present day story and Joy's recently submitted chapters from their joint memoir, which is why I chose Verity as a comp, but my book isn't quite so naughty. There's a Gone Girl twist in the middle too, but that book is too big and too old. Is there another comp that might fit? Thank you so much for your help. So again, everybody just does their homework so well. So this listener, this caller says this is a book that is not as naughty as Verity, but has that same tone, a twist like Gone Girl, but that's too big and too old. So when I listened to this recording, I thought that the relationship between the two women who are podcasters and their podcast and the memoir that they're working on sounds very much to me like Georgia and Karen of My Favorite Murder podcast. They wrote a co-memoir called Stay Sexy and Don't Get Murdered. And if that is not already on this writer's mind, I would check it out because I think it will sound similar to people. So I would mention Stay Sexy and Don't Get Murdered and Georgia and Karen of My Favorite Murder, if only to acknowledge that there there are some similarities there. And for other comps, I would look at Conviction by Denise Mina, maybe All Good People Here by Ashley Flowers, which is even more recent than that. And for a Gone Girl comp that is more recent and not as big, maybe The Better Liar by Tannen Jones. It's not a straight Gone Girl comp. It might not be exactly right for this one, but it is twisty. It is dark. It's about a relationship between sisters, but still like a close female relationship. Lots of questions very suspenseful, and it has that same big heart that that this writer mentioned. Awesome. Okay, number three. Hi, love the podcast. Thanks so much for creating such a great forum for writers. I have recently finished my book, but I'm struggling to find comp titles, so I was wondering if you could help. My novel is a time slip story set in 1794. It's first person and follows Zelda, a rebellious artist who falls back in time through a painting and meets her polar opposite, Yvain, a society woman and famous muse. They work together to try and get Zelda back home to present day, and throughout the book, Zelda deals with the recent loss of her mother, and Yvain grapples with her limited position within society as a woman. If you have any suggestions, I'd be so grateful. Thank you. I love the the time slip phrase. I haven't thought of, I I always think of like time travel, but I love the idea that this is just, it's a time, a time slip. So I love that phrase. I'm going to start using that. I would look at the God of Endings by Jacqueline Holland, which just came out and is, I don't know if it's a time slip story or exactly a time travel story, but it is sort of an immortal and time repeating story. But I would look at that. It has a strong central female character and talks about how how to be a woman in the world through history. I would look at How to Stop Time by Matt Haig, which is a little older. That was his book before The Midnight Library. But I love it as just a very enjoyable, sort of fresh take on a time travel story. And I would also look at The Last Painting of Sarah DeVos by Dominic Smith, maybe slightly old for comps purposes. I know we like to keep them in the last, you know, three to five years, maybe. But it has the sort of dual historical, dual contemporary piece. It is about art and artists. And I, I think it might work, at least as a very enjoyable read. Thank you. Here's our next one. Hello. If allowed, this is a resubmission. 
I am looking for comps for my dual timeline contemporary fiction manuscript, Ochre Coke's Daughter. Newly divorced and fleeing a lifetime of religious suppression, Sarah travels to the Outer Banks looking for her birth mother. On the island, she discovers that she's a descendant of Blackbeard and soon realizes that the eerie, recurring nightmares she's been having all her life are tied to her several times great-grandmother, the pirate's mysterious wife. The story features a slow-burning romance, self-discovery, self-rediscovery, and very light speculative elements. For tone, think Lisa Wingate or Kimberly Freeman, but I obviously need newer titles. Thank you so much. So when our, our caller here says she thinks about Lisa Wingate or Kimberly Freeman, but they're too old. So I was, tr- I'm trying to think of things that will have the same tone and the same reader as those authors. And I would look at both Kristen Harmel and Christina Baker Klein. So I think that both of those have similar themes of like a second coming of age a budding relationship. Both of them will have historical fiction pieces and maybe found family. But I think most importantly, they will, it's the same reader as the readers of Lisa Wingate and Kimberly Freeman. And I can totally see them being drawn to this, this story. And I am fascinated by the parallels with Blackbeard's Vanished Wife. I think that's a wonderful historical hook. Awesome. Okay. The next one. Hi, I'm looking for comps for my memoir. It's about love, loss, and coming to understand how we can know the unknowable, that our loved ones never leave us, and the signs that connect us are real. My working title is, I hope you like the dogs I've sent you. I'm looking for comps that are about grief, euthanasia decision, dogs, and ultimately choosing to transform grief into love. Something sort of down-to-earth, but also mystical. Examples I've thought of are In Love, Amy Bloom, The Light of the World, Elizabeth Alexander, and or using dog books, because it's about my dog, um, the Dog's Purpose books by W. Bruce Cameron, even something like Signs, the Secret Language from the Universe by Laura Lynn Jackson, or even Dog Winks by Squire Rushnell. What do you think? I love memoirs, and I particularly love memoirs about grief, and I particularly love In Love by Amy Bloom and The Light of the World by Elizabeth Alexander, so I wholeheartedly echo both of those comps. Because this book deals specifically with dogs, I would suggest a slightly older book called Afterglow, a dog memoir by Eileen Miles. Their book is a little bit older, but again, it's a, it's a very loving dog memoir. More recently, and perhaps even more on point, The Speckled Beauty by Rick Bragg. So if you don't know Rick Bragg, he is a marvelous Southern writer of memoir. And his most recent memoir, The Speckled Beauty, is specifically about a very special dog. He's a wonderful writer, so absolutely take a look at that one. And then one that is not about dogs, but is more recent than The Light of the World by Elizabeth Alexander and very much delves into how transforming grief into love is Jason Green's Once More We Saw Stars. It is incredible. If you can stomach a memoir about the loss of a child, it is as beautiful a book as you will ever read and manages to be really hopeful um, despite its very serious tone. Thank you, Emily. Okay, number six. Hello. I've written a historical fiction YA novel about 16-year-old Anna Trevor living in Brittany who is forced to become her family's provider after the death of her father. She 
ensues an entrepreneurial career as a lace maker. And I'm talking to you, trying to find novels that might provide me with insight about this genre. Thank you so much for the work you do. I'm really enjoying as a, a newcomer to the shit no one tells about writing. Thank you. So number six is asking, maybe not specifically for query comps, but maybe just some similar reads, which I love. She asked for insight, novels with insight into this genre. And the profession at the heart of this book, she says, is like an entrepreneur lace maker. So the only book I know that is uh, deals with lace making specifically is The Lace Reader by Brunonia Berry, which doesn't take place in France. It takes place in Massachusetts, but it is about lace, which is pretty specific. So I would look at that. And then for books that have a similar structure, like historical fiction about a young woman coming into her own, forced to support herself, I would look at Midnight Blue by Simone Vandervloot. That takes place in 17th century Holland, and it's not YA, but I think there's a lot of crossover appeal there, and the structure's the same. Like a young woman has to leave her home, has to support herself, and finds her talent and her creativity and comes into her own as a, as a talented professional. And I'd also look at The Weight of Ink by Rachel Kaddish, which is Jewish historical fiction, and again, it's the same the same sort of structure. So I think all of those would be really wonderful reads and would would give good insight into similar novels to what our callers listening to working on. I love The Weight of Ink. Gosh, that was such a beautiful book. Something else that they might consider is The Gown by Jennifer Robson. That's a well. great one. That's a great suggestion. All right, number 7. Here we go. Hi, thank you so much for all that the ship does. I love hearing the comps each month. My name is Michaela, and I'm looking for comps for my modern twist on gothic horror. My primary comp is Just Like Home by Sarah Gailey because it centers on two complicated women in a similar tone, but that's a mother-daughter story. It may appeal also to fans of Stephen Graham Jones and Michael Flanagan. Shelley bears the financial burden for her family and must ensure this stability remains unharmed. As a nanny to the wealthy Brownings, she has comfort, security, and the unexpected love of her troubled but sweet seven-year-old charge. Despite her attempts to resist attachment, they form a special bond. When he refers to her as his other mother, his real mom, fierce CEO Octavia overhears and the tension escalates between the women. She assigns Shelley a task out of spite, which leads to a malevolent entity being unleashed in the home. Discovering this, Shelley must decide between staying at the risk of her own life or fleeing, endangering the Brownings and her own family's livelihood. Octavia must choose who to trust and risk brutal sacrifices. Headed toward a confrontation, the women may need to band together to save the child they both love. So for a modern twist on gothic horror, I think that this writer is right on the money with Just Like Home by Sarah Gailey. We love them at East City Bookshop. They are a staple of our of our horror and fantasy section. Same with Stephen Graham Jones. I love him. And I think those are right on the money. I would suggest looking at Katrina Ward, the tension between the nanny and the mom, the malevolent entity, this gothic home, the super high stakes and brutal sacrifices. That feels very Katrina Ward to me. I think she is a rising star in horror. And specifically, I would look at probably Sundial and the girl from Raw Blood, but definitely add Katrina Ward into the mix there. Okay, number eight. Hi, I love all the comps that you give. It always gives me and my daughter ideas on books to, to put on our list. I hope this one doesn't stump you, but I'm working on a historical fiction 
that takes place in India in the 1960s. And it's about two young women who are best friends in graduate school. And one of them begins to fall in love with her professor, with their professor. And it involves kind of coming of age and friendship, kind of women making their way in a modern world, definitely religion and class. So number eight is our historical fiction in India in the 1960s. And our writer hopes that she doesn't stump me. It almost did stump me because of the setting in India. I don't have a comp to this work that is set in India because that because just because of the subject matter. But I did come up with a couple of comps that I think fit the best friends coming of age, friendship, religion, and class elements. And unfortunately, this person's voicemail got cut off before their second movie comp. And I'm just so curious as to what it was. The first one was an education and then the second one got cut off. But I love an education and I'm just thinking, oh, what could the second one have been? But for books, my comps are twofold. The Family by Naomi Krupitsky which is historical fiction. It deals with the friendship between two women. And although it's set in, it's not set in India in the 60s, it's set in sort of pre-World War II Brooklyn and the girls' families are in the mafia. So it's mafia Brooklyn. But I think it has like a very distinct setting. Um, And, but I think the themes will, will resonate and it'll be the same reader. Similarly, I would suggest Trespasses by Louise Kennedy, one of my favorite books of last year. Again, it's a story of a woman finding her young woman finding her way in the modern world. She becomes involved with an older man. There are many themes of religion and class because the setting of this one is Northern Ireland during the troubles of the 70s. So they're not in India, but I think otherwise the themes and the content of the book would work with both of those comps. All right, so let's go to the last one, Emily. Hello, Emily and Bianca. My name is Hazel, and I am looking for a comp for my upmarket fiction novel about a social media influencer who suffers from sometimes debilitating anxiety and is on the cusp of fame with her wellness online platform. Although she tries to sell tips to help others cope with their own anxiety, when the protagonist discovers at the beginning of the novel that her fiancé is having an affair with her best friend, all her tools go out the window when she panics, rashly throws her phone in a trash can, and leaves town. Our protagonist is forced to look hard at her life and what she's selling since those tips didn't help her when she needed them the most. This novel is about a protagonist's journey, struggling with anxiety, pressures of social media, a road trip without the use of a cell phone in the 21st century, and a big cast of characters and adventure. A local bookseller recommended Barbara Kingsolver's Prodigal Summer as a comp because of the self-reflection and personal journey, but it's a little too prose-heavy since my novel has more levity. It's maybe closer to E. Pray Love, although that's the wrong genre, too big and too old to use as a comp. Any suggestions are welcome. Thank you so much. I've probably said it before. I love I love a book about social media or an influencer. I think it's just so timely. I myself love Instagram and social media. I agree with this caller's assessment that Prodigal Summer is probably too prose heavy for what this one sounds like. And I agree that Eat, Pray, Love is probably too old and the wrong genre for the road trip angle and the big cast of characters, the self-discovery and the idea that we're running from something to find something else. I would suggest The People We Keep by Alison Larkin, which I've probably mentioned on here before. I think it's just super. I think it's one of the best upmarket like book club books I've read in years. And it's much more like upmarket and accessible than Prodigal Summer by Barbara Kingsolver. Not to 
you know, say anything against Barbara Kingsolver, who we love. And I would look too at Self-Help by Lee Stein, because that is a book that sort of skewers and interrogates social media and influencers. It's recent. It doesn't have the sort of road trip angle, but it does have that, like, let's look at what, what we're really doing here with social media and influencers. There's also a book coming out this summer called The Long Way Back by Nicole Bart. That's Bart with two A's. I have not read it yet, but I brought it home with me when I found it in the bookstore on Saturday because it is about, it's a mystery, but it's about a set of mother-daughter influencers and how it sort of all goes wrong. I think because it's a mystery, it's not a direct comp, but I do think it sounds like it would be of interest. And that's it. Amazing. Yeah, we're a fan of Lee Stein on the podcast. She spoke at one of our recent retreats, did a whole presentation on Memoir Plus, which was wonderful. And for those of you who don't follow her on social media, certainly do so. She's uh, She gives a lot of ideas to authors about being on TikTok and about being on social media, etc., which I know causes a lot of us a lot of anxiety. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to having you back again thank next month. Thank you so much, Bianca. I will see you all next month. Welcome to our second comps session. Now you'll know that we had Emily from East City handle our other comp requests. And now we have an expert in the speculative fiction fantasy genre to help us with these specific requests. So allow me to introduce them. RJ Witherow was born and raised in Tennessee, where they attended the University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. RJ is the events manager at Parnassus Books in Nashville and a frequent reviewer for BookPage magazine. RJ spends their spare time writing, hanging out with their dog, and trying to find the best iced coffee in Nashville. RJ, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. It's wonderful to have you. And, you know, Emily does such a great job with our comps, but she always struggles with science fiction, with speculative fiction, with fantasy. So it's going to be awesome to chat to somebody who really knows their stuff in this particular genre. RJ, before we begin, would you like to tell us about some things that are happening at Parnassus? For our listeners, Parnassus is like a holy grail indie bookstore place to visit. I haven't managed to visit yet. Anne once invited me to come stay in her basement apartment, which I am very much going to take her up on one day. But in terms of the store, I'm desperate to visit it. It's just amazing. So if any of you are near there or doing pilgrimages, go to the store. So RJ, tell us what you guys have got coming up. So like you mentioned, it is an indie bookstore owned by Ann Patchett. And I will just say, side note, it's a very impressive basement apartment. I have seen it. And I was just going to say, if you want to check us out at ParnassusMusing.net, that takes you to Musing, which is our store's blog, which if you like any of the comps I give today, that is the best place to get staff recs from me and everybody else at Parnassus. You can also just head over to parnassusbooks.net to shop with us online and check out our events calendar. We don't have a lot of virtual events coming up, but we have some really cool in-person stuff. And also they have their store dogs make recommendations, which is amazing on the blog. I'm obsessed with the store dogs on the Instagram account. Those of you who listen to the podcast know how we feel about the dogs. So uh, yeah, definitely check out the website and check out those, those recommendations. Okay, so we're going to kick us off. Here is our first one, RJ. Hold on, so I just go in. Hi, I'd love some comp recommendations for my adult contemporary fantasy, which would be new adult if that was a thing. 
The elevator pitch is a headstrong uni student must stop her obsessive vampire ex from casting a spell to strengthen vampire compulsion or risk being permanently controlled. My flawed protagonist can be selfish and buries her feelings to avoid an awkward conversation, but she has a good heart and is a girl's girl. My inspiration for the book was Twilight, as I always wondered if, given a few years, Bella would have changed her mind about making Edward her everything. My current comps are The Lost Girls by Sonia Hartle, which is the closest I've come to finding a similar book, Payback's a Witch by Lana Harper, and The Seven Vampire Mystery Series by Charlene Harris, which I know is too big and too old, but it's the only one I've managed to find where the supernatural world has been out in the open for a while, and the book shows how humans are dealing with that. Thank you for your time. First off, Payback's a Witch and Lost Girls are great comps. Lost Girls was the first book that popped into my head when I heard your pitch, though I do know it's YA. Another YA in a similar vein, though on the witchy zombie side of things, is Undead Girl Gang by Lily Anderson. I thought of that one since you mentioned your protagonist is a girl's girl, and that book deals a lot with female friendship specifically. Anderson also wrote a Buffy book, if that gives her some vampire cred in anybody's mind. Really, YA is just spoiled with like feminist spooky supernaturals at the moment. But since you mentioned your book is adult, I'm going to suggest you check out Cackle by Rachel Harrison, which is another witch story, but it has an adult female protagonist. She's gone through a breakup and her arc is about sort of embracing herself and her power, which seems like it would play off the Bella reconsidering her options angle you talked about in your message. And since you specifically mentioned you're looking for more books with supernatural creatures like vampires living openly, I'm going to mention Dead Collections by Isaac Fellman. In that book, vampires are a known thing, and vampirism is just sort of treated like a stigmatized health condition by the public. I definitely wouldn't comp it to a Charlene Harris. It's more of a reflective, internally driven book than a stop the evil vampires plans kind of book. So its usefulness as a comp kind of depends on which way your book's tone leans, but it also deals a lot with characters embracing their agency. So I think it's worth a look at least. Amazing. Love them both. Adding them to the list. Right. Okay. Here is our second one. I'm seeking comps for my literary slash upmarket novel, which, in the tradition of A.S. Bayat's possession, tells the story of a young professor and single mother, Rachel, who desperately needs to publish to keep her job. An older female academic invites Rachel to collaborate on a book about Rachel's scholarly obsession, the enigmatic 1930s poet Clara Bowers. Readers are using the poems as spells to commune with their lost loved ones, and while it isn't clear whether these modern-day seances are psychological or real, Rachel cannot afford to say no. The historical timeline tells the story of the poet Clara, an orphan and artist who falls in love with a girl at school and makes her way in the world from North Carolina to London and back in pursuit of a writer's life and love. It's The Weight of Ink Meets Writers and Lovers, or Feminist unconventional arrangements for women meet a literary mystery with bits of letters and poems and a tribute to the power of reading. So my first thought based on the mention of spells and seances was The Cloisters by Katie Hayes, which features a desperate academic who ends up mixed up in the world of art history and tarot and secret rituals. So it might have some of that seancey atmosphere that you're looking for. And it was a recent read with Genepic, so I know it's been everywhere recently. 
But then structurally, The Villa by Rachel Hawkins, which just came out a couple of months ago, actually shares quite a few elements with your pitch. It has dual timelines. One is a historical timeline following a fictional female horror novelist in the 70s named Mari or Mary, who's a reimagining of Mary Shelley, surrounded by reimaginings of Lord Byron and Percy Shelley as this 70s musician slash writer collective. But then there's a modern timeline following a novelist named Emily who ends up researching Mari's life and this famous murder Mari ends up involved in. It does deal a lot with the power of storytelling, but it is a mystery slash thriller first and foremost. So the tone is more on the sinister, unreliable narrator side of things. I do really love The Weight of Ink as a comp on that literary possession side of things. It seems to capture a lot of what you mentioned in your pitch, and it's not that old, so I think that one is still really useful. But there's also a novel that just came out in February, so I haven't read it myself yet, and I don't have a great gauge of how much reach it's getting just yet, but it's called In Papers by Jennifer Saverin Kelly. It's about a genderqueer artist and bookbinder who finds a queer love letter hidden in a book and feels compelled to track down its author. So I'd keep an eye on that, see where it goes. It might become very useful. Such a great suggestion because, you know, we're always saying comp to books that most agents and editors will kind of recognize. And it's, it's always difficult straight after a book comes out, but we're not quite sure when exactly you are querying. So you can absolutely keep an eye on those numbers. Great suggestion. Okay, here's our third one. I've written a multi-POV adult fantasy romance. I've been told my comps are too popular to use, so I would love alternate comp suggestions. My novel has elemental magic, an immersive setting, and lush world building. Here's the blurb from my query. Spirited Liren wants to make her own choices, but she's betrothed in a political alliance with the passionate and sociopathic Midnight King. When she falls into forbidden love with her protector and her sister disappears, Liren must set aside rival suitors, embrace illicit magic, and face execution if she wants to find her missing sister before magic traffickers do. With the heady romantic tension of A Court of Thorns and Roses and the lush prose and emotional resonance of Spinning Silver, this novel will appeal to fans of Sarah J. Mass, Naomi Novik, and Jennifer Armentrout. Thank you. I am not joking when I say every single time I've heard the phrase lush prose used in the last year, my mind has immediately jumped to Rebecca Ross's A River Enchanted. It's a Scottish folklore-inspired book set on this magic island, and it has gorgeous prose and a setting you can just sink into. Plus, it has elemental magic, multiple POVs, and a missing persons plotline, so I think that would be so spot on for your book. I also think Hannah Witten's For the Wolf would be a really good comp for this. It has dual POVs and a detailed magic system that still deals a lot with nature, but it also has this really strong central sister relationship, specifically that plotline of one sister trying to find and rescue the other. It also has a lot of romance, some dangerous liaisons, the works. Both of those books are the first in a duology, and both of them just had their second book come out last year. So they're super fresh, and both Ross and Witten are best-selling authors without being, you know, Sarah J. Moss. So that should help on the very popular, but not too popular to call front. Amazing. Thank you. Okay, our next one. Hi, Carly and Cece. Uh, my name is Patrick. I'm here for some comp suggestions for my novel called Leave the World. It's 
kind of hero's journey through modern day New York City. It's a little bit sci-fi, a little bit urban fantasy. I'm calling it slipstream. There's weird magical elements, but they don't you know, break reality the way that a talking cat does or telepathy. It's more um, a slow build, exploring a, a particular concept that involves synchronicities and chaos magic and psychedelic plants. The tone is a little bit whimsical, but, you know, literary, there's a lot of philosophy, definitely adult audience and, you know, a bit more of a literary fiction pace with a lot of interiority and backstory. And I'm thinking people who are into philosophy, you know, modern magic, psychedelics, exploring liminal realms might be uh, intrigued. So I'd love your suggestion. Hi, Patrick. I'm very curious about the details of these weird magical elements you mention, because from your description, I feel like I have a better idea of what they're not than what they actually are. Without more details on what chaos magic that's more grounded than talking cats and telepathy looks like in practice, I feel like I'm shooting in the dark a little bit, but I'm going to do my best. The mention of synchronicity, which in my mind is all about coincidence, makes me think of characters whose lives and stories intersect in strangely significant ways. And that made me think of The Bone Clocks by David Mitchell, though that was 2014, I believe, so it's probably a little too old at this point, and it might be more reality-breaking than you want anyway. So for a more recent comp that's on the sort of literary, whimsical weirdness angle, I thought of Pieces by Helen Oyeyemi. The characters in that book have a pet mongoose, which in my mind feels like the textbook definition of whimsy. But it's also a very challenging, almost absurdist, kind of cerebral story. So it is an example of that whimsy channeled into a literary direction. For something where the speculative element is a little more subdued and the character's interior life and mental state are very central, The Butterfly Lampshade by Amy Bender is a book that deals with memory and mental health reflected through a series of unexplainable events that the narrator experiences. However, that is one I definitely would not call whimsical in tone. Then swinging all the way back around to the sci-fi side, I feel like I have to mention The City We Became by N.K. Jemison. Jemison is almost definitely too big to comp, and this might be too sci-fi for you because it does 100% break reality with its speculative elements, but it has that New York City setting, and even if it's not a perfect comp, I had to throw it in at least as a wreck for a great take on mind-bending city magic. Like, this book is such a trip and so fun while still dealing with so many important social issues and heavy topics at the same time. I will just take any excuse to mention it, frankly. And now it's going on my list, which is, you know, my to-be-read pile is already toppling over and now we're adding some more. Okay, let's go to number five. Hi, this is Becca. Love your podcast, Looking for Comps. My debut novel, Rooting for Time, is speculative fiction in an alternate present, close third POV. Ruth, a sandwich generation sociologist with a nearly superhuman sense of time, is buckling under the combined stresses of caregiving, career, climate chaos, and rising chrono-fascism. Suspecting time itself is speeding up, Ruth goes on a quest encompassing a Wiccan Jewish commune, Tibetan Buddhism, and a think tank run by her estranged father. With somatically and politically aware interiority, slightly skeptical spirituality, and accessible science, it will appeal to readers interested in neurodiversity, intergenerational healing, and respite from today's frenetic pace of life. I've described it as Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future meets Ruth Ozeki's Tale for the Time Being or Mitch Albom's Timekeeper, or as Roland Murillo's Breakfast with Buddha meets Robert Charles Wilson's Spin. Too famous to comp, eat, pray, love meets bewilderment. Can you help? 
Wow, that is quite the mix of comps, and I am fascinated to see how all of those elements and influences come together. It seems like the major recurring themes in your current comps are a journey of self-discovery with a side of spirituality and a breakdown of the natural laws of time and space. I'll let you know right now my comps lean a little more on the latter than the former just based on my own reading wheelhouse, apologies in advance, but one comp that I think has a little bit of both is Lost and Wanted by Nell Freudenberger, which is about this physicist who gets a phone call from a dead friend, and that makes her question both the laws of the universe and her own past. This one sold really well at my store with readers who don't typically gravitate towards speculative books in a similar way to Emma Straub's This Time Tomorrow. So if you're leaning more towards the literary comps like Tale for the Time Being, it might be a good one. But the time shenanigans and mention of climate chaos also made me think of End of the World House by Adrian Selt, or Kelt, I'm not sure how she pronounces her last name, which just came out in paperback. It's two friends stuck in a time loop as the world is just falling apart, so it's a more dire take on that sort of Groundhog Day trope, and it kind of gets into some of that time weirdness that you mentioned. And then going in a slightly odder direction, what about The Last Animal by Ramona Acebel? It's a book about a mother and her daughters, and it has a science element with a strange woolly mammoth experiment. But the main reason I'm mentioning it is the characters in The Last Animal end up going on this like unexpected journey across the world. And a few of your comps mention that travel aspect. So I wanted a comp that wasn't sort of nailed in place setting wise. Awesome. Okay, let's go to number six. Hi, Bianca, Carly, Cece, and Emily. I hope the day is treating you all well, and I'd like to share my deepest gratitude for all you do for authors. You are a light to the industry. I'm seeking comp titles for my adult contemporary fantasy set in a secluded small town nestled within the Ozarks. It follows a 26-year-old barista who uncovers a past life mission after a series of unfortunate events. Not only does this mission have a world-altering effect, but it also could destroy her. Her friends from her past life also meet up with her within this book, and they have to come up with a way to save Earth, save herself, and obviously save each other from the enemy of their past life world. It has a lot of gothic undertones with the style, and it is very much nature-oriented and (laughs) animal-loving. So if you have any suggestions for anything in this realm, I feel like contemporary fantasy is a hard one. (laughs) So thank you. Agreed. Contemporary fantasy can be a tough one. My first suggestion is YA, but it's a YA set in college, so there might be some wiggle room there. And that's Legendborn by Tracy Dion. It's an incredible book about a group of students descended from the Knights of the Round Table attending a modern university. It's not exactly a reincarnation story, but it has that weight of destiny, stopping an evil from another lifetime feel that reincarnation stories tend to have. Plus, the protagonist in that book has a really great supporting cast slash friend squad, which seems in line with your pitch. I'm also going to go out on what might be a limb and suggest Sean and McGuire's middle game and or its companion novel, Seasonal Fears. They're both kind of dark, maybe matching the tone with some of those gothic undertones you mentioned. Middle game has a lot of timeline resetting, which feels reincarnation adjacent, and Seasonal Fears has a nature connection, which is what made me think of them. But they are pretty strange, so fair warning, your mileage with those comps may vary depending on how weird your book gets. But for that small town rural fantasy comp, I'd look into Charles DeLint's Newford books. 
That series has been running for a long time, but there was a new book as recently as last year, so I'd say it's still relevant. I know there are a lot of Newford books, and I haven't read enough of them personally to know if there's a specific one that would be a good comp, but I think the setting and series overall might have some of those rural nature vibes that you're looking for. Amazing. Thank you. Okay, it's our second last one. Here we go. Hi, I'm looking for help with comps. I've written a metafictional literary romance. Its tone is playful. It's lovingly making fun of the romance and action genres, their tropes and writing, while adhering to them all. And it's with characters you can care about in the genre's roles, like hero, heroine, and wise old woman. It's written as a nested story where the male protagonist asks the author to try and alter reality with her words, his story. And she agrees, however, her plan is in writing the story to blur the boundaries of fiction and reality, breaking the fourth wall and in the process influencing the hero and heroine's future. So she's flirt- it's flirting with the idea that where themes are common, such as revenge, a character from an earlier fiction can influence another character and an author can influence the current author. So currently I have The Princess Bride for meddling authorial voice, The Air Affair for genre blending, genre blending and characters from another novel showing up, and Sabbatical or Stranger Than Fiction for layers of story and storytelling and breaking the fourth wall. Thank you. I very much appreciate it. As a lifelong Princess Bride fan, this sounds super fun to me. My first comp is going to be Alex Harrow's novella duology, A Spindle Splintered and A Mirror Mended. They're extremely meta fairy tales that follow a narrator from a realistic, contemporary Sleeping Beauty retelling who ends up jumping out of her story and into another, eventually traveling from story to story and genre to genre. They've got a great sense of humor. They do a lot of meta commentary on tropes, and I think they'd be a good update to the Air Affair comp since they just came out in 2021 and 2022, respectively. Matt Haig's The Midnight Library could also be an interesting comp since it's about a character changing her own story, going through all these different versions of her life, which are represented by books in a library. My only concern with that one is that book is so big, and I feel like a lot of people are using it as a comp right now. I'm seeing it a lot in marketing materials, which could really be a point for or against using it, depending on how you look at it. And unfortunately, the only romance that springs to mind with those sort of meta elements in this vein is Between the Lines by Jody Picoult and Samantha Van Leer and its sequel. But those are YA and they're on the older side. Honestly, this one was a tough one. I feel like most of the metafiction I've seen lately leans more dark than playful. But I do think the Alex Harrow's at least will be useful and hopefully the others will help as well, at least as starting points. Yeah, and the author can always say a more playful version of X or Y, right? Which gives the agent a good understanding of what they're going for or a darker version of this, etc. So I know that I, I recently wrote a description of I said the the castle looks like the Disney castle, but if the villain lived in there, right? So so we can always reframe that. these kinds of things, and it still gives people a good a good idea of what we're talking about. Okay, here's our last one. Hi, this is Teddy Thomas, and my work in progress, titled "The Favor," is adult low fantasy with queer romance. In a future Earth with six distinct regions, vampires and humans live with a tentative truce fueled by a common ruthless enemy. Nurse Rosie's fangs never grew in, so she appears human and plans to keep it that way. But when a rogue vampire comes to collect on a deal to save her family that they made centuries ago, Rosie's thrust in the middle of vampire-human blood tax negotiations. All she has to do is find a way to work with the alluring yet bloodthirsty human on the other side of the table and not get caught by the fangs, who will force her to live her immortal life as the basis version of herself, a vampire. 
As they get closer to reaching a deal, the Bangs ramp up their attacks, and Rosie must find a solution or risk losing the woman she loves herself and let society crumble into war. The closest comp I've found is A Court of Thorns and Roses, but that's considered YA. Mine is similar in tone, but with dry humor, and I'd also like to find an adult comp that isn't fairies. Hello, Teddy. I promise fairy-free and YA-free comps. Talking queer and vampires, I'm going to go with last year's House of Hunger by Alexis Henderson. It's got blood used as a bargaining chip and a symbol of economic power. It's got high-risk court drama and a queer central relationship without spoilers. It has romance elements, but it's more of a horror novel. So with the direction it goes, I can't really call it a queer romance in good conscience. What I'm really curious about is the setting of your novel. Since you described it as low fantasy and set in a future earth, But the Court of Thorns and Roses comp is really throwing me in the total opposite direction. Because when I think Court of Thorns and Roses, I think classic high fantasy setting with historical tech and fashion, crowns and gowns, that sort of thing. So I feel like I need to know a little bit more about the world to give the most descriptive comps. For reference, House of Hunger is kind of Victorian level tech. But on the more modern side of things, Olive Blake's One for My Enemy was just republished traditionally. It was originally self-published, but it's been republished traditionally. And it has a lot of that tension between opposing supernatural factions. Plus it has romance and it's set in a modern Manhattan. The downside is I believe it's more of an ensemble. So I'm also going to throw out Book of Night by Holly Black as a potential comp with a contemporary setting. Now, Holly is a huge name to comp, but that was her adult debut, and it's completely separate from her massive YA fairy series, so I did not break my promise about the YA or fairies. I'm loving the caveats here, and I know Teddy's going to be really happy with these comps. Thank you so much, RJ, for joining us. We really, really appreciate it. I know Emily really appreciates the fact that she didn't have to go in this genre, which is is, is not her favorite. And we, we hope to have you back again soon. I would love to be back. Thanks for having me. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. news the beta reader matchup is now open for march are you looking for beta readers some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre and time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 31st of March, with the matchup emails going out on the 1st of April. The only April Fools will be those who haven't signed up. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the Beta Reader Matchup tab, and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Hello, listeners. This is your co-host, Cece, and I'm so excited to tell you about my upcoming webinar, Writing Tension. Join me on Thursday, April 11th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time via Zoom to learn all about creating tension, conflict, and stakes in a story. This is a super popular writing webinar I offer, and it's filled with expert breakdowns, practical tips, formulas for cracking these elements, and real examples from novels that will help you dial up the tension in your story in actionable ways. 
And this year, I'm doing something extra. On the Monday after the webinar, we're having a live, cozy 90-minute Q&A session in which you'll get a chance to ask your questions about the webinar. That means we'll get to hang out for two days total. And if you can't attend the webinar and or the cozy Q&A session, don't worry. They will be recorded and shared with everyone who's registered. There are limited spots for this webinar in this new format. So if you're interested, check out the link on my Instagram page and sign up. The handle is at CeceLira Agent. That's at C-E-C-E-L-Y-R-A Agent. I hope to see you there.